All right, so true crime podcast, huge. Um, I've got like this infatuation with Sam's podcast right now. We've never had a podcaster on specifically to interview, so this is the first. And let's put it this way: I interviewed a guy a couple of days ago called Ash Nugent, great guy, who's in prison in Jamaica, and he said that Sam's energy was such that when it came out after that interview, he felt his like heart chakra was open. And watching Sam, it's just like a very relaxed chat. But there is this just really warm energy that just glows, and it's it's uplifting at this time, you know, when there's podcast wars and beefs and everyone's taking things so seriously. Like I said about that interview I just did with Mr. Fish, it's time for some comedy and some positive energy. And Sam just radiates that. So in the description box below this video is going to be a link for Sam's channel. I hope some people go over there and subscribe. He is on his way to have a massive following just by virtue of his authenticity and um, the way he handles his guests. I mean, one of the best interviews I saw on his channel was his interview with Darren G., and I think he really got the best out of Darren. And I watched that one from beginning to end. I was absolutely gripped. So thank you very much for coming all the way from Lincoln, Sam. Thank you for having me. And it's um, it's an honour to be here. A big fan of the True Crime podcast. Cheers. And uh, that introduction, thank you very much. If that, uh, <laughs> yeah, Ashley to say that. Thank you to Ashley as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to stay sane in the madness yeah keep it relaxed and just keep it real you know just honest chats so before we get to your life story which i'm very curious about because i've been googling you i've not been able to find out very much what made you want to start a podcast oh right okay probably if i'm being brutally honest with myself and it'll unravel as we talk i like to be heard (laughs) you know i think for my own mental health i like think out loud you know, um, I've always been in bands and then the last band that I was in kind of came to the end of its line and my bands had gone from like five piece bands, busy bands, touring bands, and they sort of got smaller and smaller and kind of more and more technologically based and less travel, less vans, less logistics to when I arrived in a duo, electronic duo, and we we're basically doing stuff via email. And then eventually we got together in my, uh, what is now my podcast studio. And we used it as a bit of a rehearsal space. And we got something going, which was great. But then it, it hit the wall. My 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 uh, my partner in the band was kind of like, I'm, do you know what? I'm not fussed about going out and doing gigs and doing this and doing that. And I thought, right, I've always wanted to do the podcast. I love podcasts. I mean, podcasts have educated me probably more than my formal education, I would imagine. And as I mentioned to you before we got going, Sean, you know, like, probably for about 12 years, a lot of American podcasts, Massive for me. I was all over Joe Rogan for many, many years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's had such an... I mean, it's almost like saying the Beatles, you know, that is big. It's that big now that it's almost become, you know, innocuous to, you know, he's pointless. But he's huge. And I think the guests, the array of guests that he's had on there really opened my eyes to all sorts of avenues of life. And other podcasts that I went on to follow, and one of the ones that's probably the most impactful to me uh, tangentially speaking with Chris Ryan, Dr. Christopher Ryan. 
I've not seen his. Oh, yeah, he wrote. He's an anthropologist. Wrote. He's a PhD anthropologist, and he's kind of coming from the idea of, you know, tribal behaviour and like so much I've learned. So when the opportunity came for me, I thought, this is it. I've kind of got my studio's built. You know, I could I could probably do this. I need an outlet. I need a creative outlet. You know, I've always been into my art, if you like, drawing. I went to art college. So, yeah, I think the podcast was... Um, and also, with no disrespect to any of my bandmates in the past, it's nice to just have your own creative ideas and not have to run it by someone and bounce it off them and alter it, change it, or have that weird anxiety of, like, oh, do they like it? Or are they just... just nice to just get in and do it. So you're used to being behind the mic then? Yeah. 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 So what is your philosophy then? Just having like a casual chat with somebody, getting the darkest moments, their life stories. What is your approach? This is a bit of a cliche and too simple, really. Just trying to be as honest as I can be in myself. And I find that, <clears throat> you know, when you're prepared to, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes, which is why the True Crime podcast meant a lot to me when you started doing that, because I was seeing these young lads who have made mistakes, big, important mistakes in their early life, then getting put into a system that doesn't rehabilitate them, it actually, you know, regurgitates trauma, produces more trauma, and then thumps them back out into a world that they can't adapt to. And I'm fascinated by trying to be a human being, just being okay. Something Ashley Nugent talks really you know, eloquently about just trying to be okay. So when I'm setting about this, a lot of it was like to dare myself to be as honest as I can be and to face my truth, you know? And I think when you do do that, because we all get caught up a little bit in what's right or what's wrong or, you know, and it's to be truthful is not to be right or to be wrong. It's just to, to allow it to make mistakes. We're all fallible. So I think by doing that to myself, um, I think... Over time, it, you trust that a little bit and hopefully it, it draws it out of the energy when you're with someone. And that's the thing, isn't it? We are all fallible. We are all making mistakes constantly. And there's people out there like lynch mobs just waiting for you to do something wrong as if these people have never made single mistakes in their lives. Mm. And you mentioned um, you know, people who've gone through that hard time as a young person. So... You know, I read Darren's book and my heart absolutely broke reading what he went through. And I think that story's got the most views on your channel. Yeah, I mean... Is that, what you, is that what you're referring to? That kind of story that, you know, that these, these people's identities forge out of these baptisms of fire that they can't control really because they're young people. And then that carries forward into the adult lives. Precisely. I mean, you know, from the artistic point of view, the podcast came around circumstantially. I've got this. I've got this need to be heard. I've got this studio, but also from a philosophical point of view, I came from a family that was um, broken and broken in, in quite an impactful way. I didn't have the f the physical abuse like Darren did, you know. But again, why why I felt an affinity when I saw him on your show was because I I, I felt that path and I've seen that path and been around that path. And for me a big part of the podcast as well was me recognizing early that what happens in childhood dictates so much of the trajectory that we're going to take, you know? And again, in a selfish way, in many ways, me 
trying to find that honesty is really me trying to fix myself by just understanding that you're not alone. Everybody's fucking come from all these different walks of life and your perspectives are built. And as we sit as adults, so much of us has been cultivated by what we thought to be normal. And for somebody like Darren, you know, um, which to, dig, to sort of digress a little bit with Tony Gooch, who was another great character add-on. Oh, what a fantastic he, guy. It was odd with Tony because he had... A good childhood, which I found to be kind of like, well, that kind of, you know, so I won't digress too far. But yes, yeah, essentially, yeah, childhood, my own trying to fix myself from my childhood. I'm one of six siblings, uh, parents divorced when I was little, you know, and it was messy. And yeah, trying to fix myself and understanding, you know, that this has an impact on us forever. And also becoming a father and it really hitting home, you know, I've got to do my best to try and make this environment safe. And learning as well. So Joe Rogan, eclectic range of guests, you learn so much. But then when you're sat here interviewing people and hearing their stories and what they've learned, then you do start to learn things about yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, just this week, 10 guests in the Liverpool studio. And some of those guests have been really philosophical. One guy was an eighth degree, eight dans he had in, in, his, in his black belt. And... Um, I read a lot in prison and I've kind of like lost a lot of that information and he's read a lot of the same stuff and he's written 50 books and it was really like reigniting all of that in me again and I was learning it all over again and then some and it made me reflect on my life and my mistakes in the last couple of years and how he said like if people are attacking you with, with a certain energy then you've got to look at what you're putting out there that's that's perhaps attracting that. And you've got to like make your energy more pure. So you've got to examine everything you're doing to take responsibility yeah. for things that ha everything that's happening in your life. It's 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 you you've got to take responsibility for it. Mm. And um going through the lessons of the last year, you know, highs and lows and everything and as things grow on YouTube, it just gets really crazy and dramatic. Mm. And then, you know, losing Wildman at the end of last year, I was on a low for several months. Um, but since his funeral, I feel I've, I've bounced back. So if it's going good again now. Mm. But yeah, we, my, what I'm trying to say is we're constantly learning. And I feel privileged to have the best job in the world, you know, just meeting interesting people yeah. like you. Yeah. Hearing your story... And absorbing that and, and the lessons I could apply in my own life. Yeah, it almost yeah. lends a new perspective because you, you're listening to somebody else's story, but maybe the circumstance that they're, they're, they're talking about or the, you know, the point of view, you can relate back and go, actually, I saw that. I used to think that, actually, but now I, you know, maybe when you've had five or six guests talking about the same situation, but from a different point of perspective. Yeah. It helps you reshape and, you know, ultimately cast your judgment in a, a more co a compassionate an empathetic way, I think. Yeah. And you mentioned the books there. I mean, I sent producer Aidan, who sat with us, you know, um, he's an avid reader, young lad, but am I right in saying you read around a thousand books? Yeah. Um, I, so I served, I served just under six years. And I started at some point to write down every single book and rate it. So in 2006, I wrote, I read 268 books alone. Whoa. And now my sister's got a degree in classical literature and I'd never read before my arrest all i ever read was finance books and the last book i read 
was in fiction was To Kill a Mockingbird required reading in high school. So when I told my sister I've just read 268 books this year, she was like, you lucky bugger. People have got lives, jobs, responsibilities, families. No one could ever do that unless you were like a locked away in a cave or, or a prisoner. Yeah. So once I went through the various stages of adaptation, I realized I need to turn this time into the education opportunity of a lifetime. Mm. And that, that's what I tried to do. And I did get really um, gripped by philosophy and psychology and history. Did you have an interest in that prior? No, I was just an insane party person. So what I found interesting about that yeah. is that when I le learned this about you yeah. <clears throat> was, you know, as I've, as I've sort of alluded to a little bit there, as I've gotten older and realised about childhood, I've read a lot about child psychology, general psychology, philosophy, mm. and it feels like there's a knowing in us. You know, yeah. we know so much of this deep and profound philosophy it's in us we just necessarily can't articulate it or connect the dots and, and then allow it to come through our behavior and as i started to read it i thought oh this make this is helping me make so much sense of how i arrived where i'm at and so on when i was thinking about you in, in the jail cell I, thought, I wondered did you have you know were you intrigued by that stuff before and if not as you are starting to read young and all these people in jail how's it reframing your ability to cope and a vision of a future that you might find? Okay, then. So going back, right, so I got obsessed with the stock market when I was 14. So I went down to Witness Library and ordered every book I could on the subject. And I quickly learned that it wasn't just a numbers thing. It was a psychology thing. Yeah. So I did become obsessed with psychology as a teenager in terms of crowd psychology. So I was reading at age like 14 to 16, books like Le Bon, The Crowd, and Mackay's Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which I, I, I read again um, over the years because stock market is crowd psychology. So this was all purely, though, um, a emotionally mature materialistic phase of my life where I'd watched Wall Street, Greed is God, I've got to be a millionaire by the age 30, so I've got to learn everything I possibly can on that subject. So, finished um, school, A-levels, degree. By then, it's all like finance and calculus and balance of payments equations. And I um, wasn't interested in fiction. and I, Philosophy, I didn't even know what the word meant. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I, I um, go to America, um, work in the stock market, still reading finance books, quit that after five years or so just a complete then you know party person stockbroker gone wild not reading anything really just going balls to the walls just getting high and, and having an insane time mm. SWAT team come and um I still started to read finance books in the jail and then somebody gave me Orwell's 1984 someone gave me Huxley's Brave New World uh -huh. and I thought holy shit there's some parallels in my life here. Mm. Huxley, the excesses of, you know, the drug Soma, I think they called it yeah. in that book, and what yeah. they did. Yeah. And then Brave New um, Orwell, the totalitarian conditions of the jail I was in under Ar Sheriff Arpaio. So that got me interested in fiction. And once I crossed over into like philosophy and stuff like that, I realized how little I knew. 
and how much about the, how much there was to learn. Being human, um, about existence, about experience. What in particular, or just the just how little I thought. You know, like when you're a young person and you've got the arrogance of you're going to take over the world yeah. and you know everything. Yeah. Well, I was that emotionally immature when the SWAT team came when I was 33 years old still. I think when you start to do a lot of drugs at a young age, it kind of traps you mentally. Mm. And it took going through incarceration for me to grow up as a person. So yeah, I was I was very emotionally immature. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. So is there a point then, obviously you mentioned it there with Brave New World and you sort of realise, okay, there's parallels with the jail, you know, the drugs, the the you know, the inoculation of the mind. And yeah. Is there a moment where you have, do you read something and, and you realise, oh, I can build a new future. Or I can build upon these ideas. I can take this and I can see how this works. Yeah, there was. Um, okay, so I started this blog to expose the conditions and that was in Maximum Security, Madison Street Jail, 2004, I believe. And my writing got discovered by a literary agent. I think that was several months later. And um, they, she said, like, you know, you're naturally funny and good writer. Have you thought about being an author? So just like I'd set my sights on the stock market then, I set my sights on learning everything about writing. And someone said, your writing will improve if you read a lot. So then I just, like non-stop reading every single day and it took me out the cell as well so it was like mentally it kept me focused yeah. on study instead of what was going on around me mm. i put like a headset on and i quickly realized that if you're trying to study you've got to listen to music that doesn't have lyrics and the only radio station available was the classical station i never liked classical music so i've got this classical music on purely for the purposes of blocking out all the background din. I mean, every sentence in there is like, motherfucker this, what I'm doing, <laughs> fuck you now. Da, 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 you fucking punk ass bitch. All day long. Mm. So I've got this on just to block that out. But what happened was... <laughs> it facilitates learning though, doesn't it? I've read the science, some science on that. I don't know what, what happened was. Yeah. I started to like, certain classical music would come on and all my arms started to goosebump. And this, you know, like when you're on ecstasy, yeah. this feeling ran down my spine. Wow. And I put my book down and I just closed my eyes and lie back. <laughs> and over time I learned what they were. And it was like um, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, um, Beethoven's, like piano sonatas and various symphonies, um, some Chopin. Um, and... Those moments were just really magical to just start what I was doing and lie back and close my eyes and just yeah. let this music. Like you've disappeared, like you've gone, yeah. you've gone to that place. You're yeah. no longer in this place, which yeah. must be handy in that scenario. Yeah, so, so I've diverged there about the music, but um, yeah, got into philosophy, history, like the ancient Greeks. And was anyone stood out like their style to you that, that became like a go-to for you, you know? in terms of the the writing or the philosophy? Yeah. People like Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, I, I became obsessed with Nietzsche, just reading Nietzsche over and over again. Mm. 
know about um, I mean you hear him in rap rap videos these days mm. what doesn't kill you makes you stronger mm. um, and the stoic philosophers yeah. that some of those were slaves who were liberated and if you're a prisoner you know just training that mind to not react and consider yourself incarcerated because you're still always free mentally and it doesn't matter what is going on around you, your reaction to it, you have power over that through your thoughts. So, you know, I could get up and hear the din and realize I've got X more years to serve and feel sorry for myself. But that is like a bad judgment according to the Stoics. Mm -hmm. You want to tell yourself, you know, that you're alive, the miracle of existence yep. is within you and you're going to get out at some point and you're learning so much now, you're going to be able to apply that and you, you know, be even more happy and successful, not necessarily financially successful because looking back at what I'd done, I did make that million and what did it get me? Yeah. Just drug addled insanity, a whole load of problems because once you go over that, slippery slope of the glitz and the glamour once that's gone it goes into the dark side as you see in all the big movies that show you know the drug traffickers mm. it ends up in this slope that they can't get out of and death prison oh, yeah. mental hospital so i credit incarceration with saving my life and put me somewhere where i learned more than i did from getting my university you like degree. rehabilitated yourself like what the system's supposed to do you know, within that system, you've done that for yourself in a, in a liberating way where you've chosen to just educate yourself yeah. and get lost in it. I mean, that, that example you give there with Nietzsche, with, with that, you know, and the Stoic, it's like, I took that from Viktor Frankl's um, Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah, I love that one. You know, yeah. he, he's in, in, the, in the, obviously, Auschwitz and that, the ownership of your sovereign choice to be how you want to be in this moment no matter the horror and yeah. obviously there's not much more horror than that took a lot from that that's a that was a that was a moment for me well if the eight um dan black belt we would he's he's big on frankel we were discussing frankel earlier in the week mm -hmm. and he showed how the people who survived the longest in the concentration camps are the ones who put that meaning into their lives mm -hmm. so for us reading books like a day in the life of ivan Donosovich where Ivan's in the gulag and they're fighting over a fish eyeball in the soup just to try and stay alive. Mm. Made us think, we've got it great. <laughs> God, yeah. It's all relative. Yeah, There's always somebody suffering. Yeah, and one of my protectors in prison was this guy called Two Tonys, Bonanno crime family associate that was serving a big sentence. And he'd be like, yeah, you know, there's mudslides in the Philippines. There's people getting the shit bombed out of them in the Middle East. Yeah. And, you know, there's always somebody worse off. So people out there, you know, you might be locked down right now. But think about people who are really suffering around the world. Think about the toughest things you've ever got for in your own lives. Having that yardstick gives you that, you know, attitude whereby I can really get through this. I've got this inner strength. This ain't no big thing. And I can use this time to educate myself and look aside as well because it's that inner journey, isn't it? Totally, man. Absolutely. And coming back to the podcast, you know, for me, it's only been one year, 27th of 
January was our first episode, 2020. Yeah. Little did we know how the year would go, but we started just audio. I just had my little laptop <clears throat> and I knew I had friends who were interesting that I'd met through music and all the other journeys I'd been on. Yeah. And I thought this is just, I think cause I was conditioned a bit, you know, I'd get my time, you know, in the studio rehearsing, playing with bands. So like natural progression, inviting these people in chatting and then realizing as you mentioned like i'm getting this thing coming back to me i'm learning not just about these people and about life experience from all these different angles but i'm learning about me yeah you know and then uh yeah this year changed we ended up spending a lot more time at home let's say and that's when we decided to to bring cameras in and say okay let's with the help of young producer aiden who, who helps me out put the cameras in there and try and really turn it into into something my, in a nutshell, Chew the Chat podcast, here it is, is me trying to fix myself based on all of that, this framework that I was raised upon to view the world and see my place in the world and deconstruct that and find positive meaning and then kind of con conversing with other people about that and trying to spread that out and just so many... Because I know what it's like to be a young lad and catch somebody on a podcast I've never heard about, never knew who they were, wasn't there for celebrity or whatever it was just and then a a story of just a really tangible story of a parallel you know that brings something out in me as a listener and then you take that you know you so subliminally you think you're just listening and you've been entertained in that moment or whatever but over time you start to realize oh i'm adapting behavior i'm i'm seeing things slightly differently i'm growing and that 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 is something that i'm i'm really really yeah, I'm really pleased about with if people uh, you said those lovely words with Ashley. If that's something we're starting to 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 get across, then that's really that's re as rewarding as anything needs to be for me. <laughs> so I've googled you, Sam. Couldn't find much about your life story. So who is Sam Souls of Lincoln? Um, Were you born there? No, no, I wasn't. No, um, I was born in Berkshire in a little place called Taplow in Maidenhead. Okay. So um, my family, my my mum and my dad, they were, my mum was from Windsor. My dad was in Maidenhead. And then his parents were all East London. Um, and we ended up in Maidenhead on the peripherals of London because of the evacuation and stuff in the war. I was born down there, um, oldest of, at the time, three of us. But there was, as I mentioned, you know, turmoil in the family. So a nasty... A nasty, well, not a divorce initially, but a, a nasty internal affair in the family just shattered our family as I'm a, a, just a, a one or 18 month old baby, sort of in my first year, if you like. And our families, half the family moved to one end of the country in Devon and we moved up to the East Midlands into Lincoln. When you say internal affair, what do you mean by that? Uh, my my, my mum essentially had an affair with my uncle. Okay. So to put some perspective on the timeline, my, my dad's dad had cancer and was basically just died just before I was born. And so my mum and dad sort of got married with a little bit of haste so he could see that. And then it was left to my nana, um, you know, who was the, the matriarch of the family. And, you know, it's true what they say, you know, because when she passed through many years later, it all did change. But, um, yeah, he, my granddad passed and then my my dad had one sister and they 
she was married to her husband and it was her husband and my dad's wife that had an affair. So obviously they're mourning, you know, and it just tore things apart, obviously. And as I say, they went one way to Devon and we went the other way to, to the East Midlands. And when you're a kid, you don't, you know, what you just you were just moving house, you know, you're not privy to why and what and the energy. So the energy is the thing that I look back at now and I, and I can start to feel things and go, oh, you know, that makes sense. But yeah, we 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 all moved and um I arrived up up north, let's say. I mean it's known as East Midlands, but we always feel think of ourselves as quite northern in in mentality and, and so on. But um so I had a different accent to the kids in school. I was maybe five or six. Um yeah, and I got, I would get sticked for being posh or a cockney or whatever, different. And I remember um, getting home from school in this new place. And like I say, not aware that this carnage had happened in your family, but looking back, yeah, you, children have got an intuition, you know, and something, you knew, you know something. And anyway, I was confused, a bit lost. And, uh, my mum, who's, you know, proper, likes to be proper, you know, I did, so I don't speak correctly. So I start to adapt how I speak. I, you know, where I'm from, you say grass. Where my mum's from, you say grass. And that's kind of a, a, something that's important to my mum, you know. So when I'm getting home, I'm at school, I'm getting kind of, I'm getting heavy, heavy petted. <laughs> because I'm posh and I say grass and now I start saying, you know, adapting and, and changing my accent and just trying to, you know, naturally fit in. But then when I get home, I'm getting berated and kind of told I don't speak correctly and that's not right. And you know, there's corporal punishments and there's, it's messy, you know, and so I've got to be a chameleon. Yeah. An identity crisis of like, I, I'm not, and you know, and this is, it feels harsh to say, but it's the truth. You know, I, 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 I the psychology that I've read, a lot of the books that I've read, trying to piece this all together as an adult and as a father is like, what happened when I was young? You know, why have I never been close to my mum? You know, why, why, do, why is it that we don't, you know, everything's formally very, it's fine. On the surface, it's wonderful. Nice house, nice car, you know. Everybody's, it's all how it should be on the postcard. But it didn't feel right and, uh, and it never has been right. And I've battled with that the whole time. And in, and in amongst that time, the when we did move up here, it happened again. And then my mum and dad finally did divorce. And then we were sort of in a, in a new world with a new guy who's a great guy. And as we sit here today, I've kind of got two dads, if you like. Unfortunately, because like my dad um, was kind of banished out of our life. Um, for a couple of years after the divorce, it was okay. And, you know, me and my two siblings would go and, and see him at the weekends, be reasonably local. And you kind of adapt to that. And again, it seems, it felt normal. Like you're going to your dad's, you're not going to your dad's because you are going to your dad's. Then you go to this other place with these other rules and this other way of seeing the world. And then you come back and then it's different again. And, and then eventually that stopped. And again, I didn't know why, but next thing my dad's going to live in Thailand you know, and you're told that your dad don't care and this and that and the other, and you're like, what? And then, you know, and then you're not ringing your dad, you're not speaking, you know, and for a long time he was banished. And this was back in the days, no mobile phones, you know, change the phone number. Your dad doesn't care about you because he doesn't pay the maintenance. Very confusing. So then you start thinking, oh, my dad don't care, you know, and for a long time, a 25-year period, you know, 
other than a couple of moments where we get a holiday when the dust settles a little bit and maybe a payment's been made or whatever it is, you know, I managed to, to get to my dad a little bit. But yeah, the, 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 the damage and the reverberations of that, um, of my relationship with my mum predominantly and her perspective on the world. You know, I was, as I've mentioned, I've been in bands. I'm kind of the black sheep. I'm not like a conforming, regular how my mum would like it to be. You know, she's rather conservative and, and, and I just baffled her, I think. And she didn't know how to deal with me. And I wasn't a problem kid, I just different. And that has affected me um, and my siblings. And now I look around at my wider family and I can see, and this is why it's so important to me what I'm doing with you, the chat and trying with the young people listening and with my own kids, just trying to create a place that's safe, you know, right wrong maintenance paid not paid you know a father's a father a mother's a mother if a relationship doesn't work we have to remember that these children are learning all the time in ways we which i'll get onto later you know because we've taken our children in a down a different road entirely than the conventional route based on all of this learning basically how do you get to be all right the damage that's happened when you're young is is enormous so that was a big part of me arriving in lincoln and then from there because of that feeling of not fitting in at home, not fitting in at school. Although I was good at sport, I was a good footballer, you know, like high level, played for the city. And at the time, Nottingham Forest were um, one of the biggest clubs in the in the country. And we were just up the road from there, ended up getting scouted playing for them. So at school, I had kudos as one of the lads. <clears throat> but I was always a little bit of a musical geek. So I was kind of in the middle. So again, I'd have that battle of like the lads, all the tough lads. I'd be hanging around with the tough lads and the boys. But then I'd also be like with the geeky lads and, and the quiet lads and, you know, and the lads with daft scarves on and, you know, long coats and their musical vibes. So you sort of contend with that. But that kudos got me through that. Um, and then leaving school straight to art college and just a quest to, I think looking back now, I know how it works with the podcast and my reading. I was always trying to find out what's going on. Like, what is it to be, what is happening? Who, why are we even here? Like, what is a human being? What's the point of this? And why do I think this and you don't get it? And especially with my mum, that was always the, it's like, how I feel like we're from other planets. You don't understand anything about me. Anyway, hmm. I find drugs. I go to art college. I'm in bands. I start smoking and start partying and have a great time. What because year was that? By the time I start doing that, it's probably 95 or 6. As a young teenager in a couple of last years of school, I would have started just dabbling with, you know, drinks, always drink first. I mean, I don't care what anyone says. Weed is a gateway drug. Kids are drinking alcohol, which is, let's remember, is a drug and a dangerous one, right? So we're drinking and then a bit of smoking and then um, you get a bit older. And we leave school and I'm at art college and just opened up to this whole world of music, creativity, ideas, and like a free flow of everything, which was great. And I had a wonderful time. Then I started to get into the raving. And because I'd loved guitar music and always been in bands, it was a bit of an obscure transition, but I got it. And, you know, somebody gave me some bass or an half an E or whatever it was. And then it was like, whoa. All made sense. I love you and you love me. And then I'm talking to some of these lads, some of these tough lads I used to hang around with, all of a sudden we got our arms around each other and we're, we're saying things that we must have always felt, but we just in the, in the normal processing world that we live in, you can possibly say that to your buddy out of the blue. I fucking love you, man. No, I mean it. Come here. I fucking love you. 
you know, you know that. And then that opened up a whole world of, of this belonging, I guess, you know, but probably similarly to you by the sounds of it, I go in hard and I went in hard and the novelty turns into something else. And what do you mean by going hard? Too much, too often, which results in, you know, you've got to subsidize this thing, you know, and then you're into another chapter of this whole thing, you know, where you're moving in, in a different world, you know, where, I don't know, I think the fog that comes over, you know, that initial love and the, and the vibes and the dancing then became, I don't know, it, it, it went from dancing and the loving to just being kind of out my nut, monged, you know. How not, long did that take? Only about three or four years, probably about three years, I think. By the time, by the time I started to find myself just like, you know, buying bottles of vodka three days later and not going to work and just carnage and being rough to people, you know, back of house parties and just fucking, you know, the banter just is no longer banter and we're just ruining people and just not nice, man. Really not nice. You're on that dark slope, then, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And then even on your own, even back then, I know, I know getting in cabs and seeing dog walkers at two o'clock on a fucking Sunday afternoon and thinking, I just wish I was walking a dog normal. <laughs> You know, and here I am, just spent everything, obliterated. I've got, you know, hot knife brands on me from where we've done stupid, chaotic. And just thinking, oh, why am I, I don't want to be like this, you know. And it, then by that time, it's difficult to change the course, you know. And I'm in my, you know, probably early 20s and I'm thinking, oh, fuck, you know, how do I do this? But your, your friendship groups, your geography, everything is kind of it's so difficult. You might, I might have enough willpower to say, you know what, this week I'm not, you know, and you have a drink and then, oh, cool, you know, and before you know it, you're back there and the cycle goes again. And that started to eat away at me a bit. Um, but I think one of the things that did keep me, because like you, I lost my best friend this year, um, Wade Benson, who I'd been through all these escapades with. And again, a very similar we've been and seen things together that you couldn't, you can't articulate to people. It doesn't make sense. That can't happen. It happened. Um, but I lost him this year and alongside lots of other, of, you know, friends of mine and people I grew up with that have taken their own lives that have been locked up, that have been put in, you know, mental care. You're seeing it happen, you know, and I, I kind of had a, I think from having the music, from me having a purpose, managing to drag myself to rehearsal and get, you know, save up to get the amp in the, in the mists of all the madness or whatever it was I needed to do. That gave me something that I didn't have in my family life, you know? Um, and I think in the end, that was a big contributor to getting me through that period of, of time. How heavy was your drug use at the peak? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I used to come to this city once a month and uh, leave with a party bag. And my friend Wade, who I mentioned, he'd be he'd be doing the pills, I'd be doing the smoke, and we'd be armed for whatever, wherever, you know, that, that we'd be the party wherever we went. You know, we might do I'd be partying for I mean, I was always been self employed in the in the building industry, so I was able to just sort of come and go as I pleased and yeah, we'd we, So weed, ecstasy and alcohol was the thing. Yeah, and cocaine and speed and bass, yeah. Um, GHB was massive for us. Ketamine, we got on the ketamine quite early when we went to Sheffield, I'll never forget. 
you know, some girl saying to us, look, don't do what you would do with Coke with this because this is not that. And, like, and then, whoa, we learned that quickly. Just anything. I was, we were at a point, there's a little clutch of us that were just escaping whatever it was. We were individually escaping and we were doing it together. And I'm going in hard, you know. Um, dabbled with heroin, opium, whatever was there. But I was always, I always had enough wherewithal when it got to the, those substances where I knew, whoa, this is, this is dangerous territory, you know. I only shot up heroin once and um, I couldn't check out the bloody hotel. I was there for like two or three days puking and scratching and seeing things on the ceiling. Oh. I thought, I take ecstasy, I dance and smile and get massaged for like four or five hours. And I'm just having to, th what is this shit? Yeah. Fortunately, that put completely put me off. I wanted yeah. to go back to that. I never, I never, never did anything with a needle. Never speedball, nothing. Never jacked up. I mean, friends who were jacking bass up and having a great time. But I was like, just I don't know. Something in me was like, no, that's a line for me. But smoking it and sniffing it was was weird. The heroin. But again, those those occasions came around. As I look back now, as a as a somebody trying to work out how do you help young kids, like, I was always in environments where there was bigger, older lads from the estate who were directing things, and you were kind of just. On the on the coattails of it all, and kind of pleased to be there because it's all the mad lads and it's crazy and it's fun. But then there's a yeah, there's a fear and a like, oh Jesus Christ, is this happening? And but yeah, I did always manage to at least in those moments like manage to find my breaks and get myself somewhere near sane. You know, in those moments. Sounds like you did a similar drug combo as me, and knew where to stop rather than going to the complete oblivion level. Mm. I mean, living with uh, people, you know, who were heavily injecting, mm. just seeing the devastation that causes. Mm. Then again, I had an alcoholic cellmate, and I, he looked like a wizened old man in his 70s. And he said, I'm in my 40s. This, I, I drink like a quart of liquor a day. Mm. This is what alcohol does to you if you drink it every day. I was like, mm. oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, savage, man. Yeah. It is savage. I mean, where, where we where we were on the estate, where we were split into two, you had the east and the west. And maybe looking back, maybe it helped us because on the west, that was where all the brown was. You know, all the guys on the brown were on the west and we kind of had this, there was like a, I don't know, like a, like a, a, a system of hierarchy really, where on the east, we were party drugs. On the west, they were brown, dirty drugs. And I think that probably helped us to keep some kind of, you know, but it would obviously cross over every now and again. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, whether it's an intrinsic knowing that, you know, that heroin can lead to absolute biological dependency, you know, physical dependency. And that the, it always seemed to me like I could take it or leave it with the ease. And it, it felt, and I think for me accurately, as I look back, it was a lot more to do with the environment and the, the surrounding factors as opposed to just the ease, you know. I don't need to take another E because my body's telling me I've got to have another E. It was like, it was the surrounding um, elements of that of that lifestyle. So, yeah. I think my most addictive phase was, was when I was on crystal meth, but I never smoked anything. Wild men would smoke crack and crystal meth and just stay up literally for weeks at a time. Mm. And he'd go on a walk and he'd just come back days later with his shoes all bust up and his feet bleeding. He'd just have walked for like two or three days. Mm. Sometimes he dehydrated so much, he ended up in hospital. It was... First time I ever did crystal meth was in um, Thailand. Got off the plane in Thailand with my brothers to meet my other brother who was living there. We literally went to his condo, 
I'd had a chat and we, we'd been obviously traveling from England. So we've been traveling for 20 hours. It's like 10 o'clock at night when we land. So we're excited. We go and see him. He's chilling. We're having a smoke. And he's like, well, you know, what about this? <laughs> so we go, come on then. So we hit that and we didn't go to bed for another two days. So we did like three days. And, and I can remember me, me and my brother saying, you know, it was mad. We were four, four brothers. Because we, we podcast sometimes, four brothers, which are quite interesting podcasts early on. But yeah, we were all sat out there on this stuff and was like, fuck me, like, is this ever going to, like, stop? <laughs> and the smells of, like, inner city, you know, Patea and fucking the madness going on. And it was like, it was Actually, fun. Xanax. It was fun, but yeah, like, whoa, yeah. What's your craziest party story? Oh, God. Or insane on drug story? Don't know. I don't want to incriminate anybody. I mean, some horrible, Just horrible. Don't use anybody's happen. real names. Let's let's go with that. Some horrible things have happened, Sean. You know that I look back at that were just fucking literally just criminal, and that you just should not, you know, putting people in terror. Horrible things, you know. Mm. And I've been there when that's happened in places where I am as well. You know, where people have come through the door. You know, obviously in that world, there's a lot of taxing and things like that. Um, there was a funny, a funny one was when uh, we'd been to a festival somewhere, Gate Crasher Summer Sound System or somewhere like that. Oh, I used to listen to those Gate Crasher CDs in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, I loved it, and we used yeah. to go to like the home, like the big festivals in somewhere like Homelands, Creamfields, and uh, like I say, Gate Crasher Summer Sound System did a good one. And someone had some acid. We had some acid, and we ended up in the back of this van, transit van. And there must have been about sixteen of us in the back of this van, and we'd put mattresses in there. I mean, it was weird. It was like a really obscure time looking back now. But we ended up coming back to this house party and we had this acid and uh, my friend Wade, who um, who's now passed away, he was just like, he loved that world and he was really into his philosophy. It all went over my head back then. It all went over my head back then, but he was so far out. He knew all of the good works and like understood the human condition and, but he was always, he did have a psychological deficiency you know there was something in his in his genes that, that he struggled with but he was beautiful and really knowledgeable but he was so funny so when we had this acid he'd just control the vibe of the room and just be you know some people can just hit it hit it hit it hit it and just have you broken um yeah load, loads of just funny stuff but I, I, I can't think of anything that won't did you ever wig out on hallucinogenics in what sense what like lose my shit yeah there was a time, there was a time, yeah, when I was, we ended up in a car, which was really fucking crazy, uh, an Orion gear, one of my mates had, and we ended up in a chase going through those two estates I mentioned, the east and the west. And I was young, and there was four or five of us in the car on this acid. And I remember thinking, I could see, it came over me. I was in the middle of the back, two lads either side of me in the back, two lads in the front. And the driver's super confident, baseball caps on, you know, the spoiler and that, it's all lowered, pepper pot wheels, it's like the <laughs> archetypal. And one of the older lads, we would have been, the oldest lad with us would have been 20, 22. I'd have been maybe 17, 18. And one of the older lads from the, you know, the men, let's say, who used to sell a lot of weed and other stuff, on, he, we'd pissed him off. I think we'd gone flying down his street or something and he got in his car and started chasing chasing us through, through the estate. And we were like, sometimes like 80, 90 mile an hour through a housing estate. It was, and I just had this flash come over me where I could see the tabloids 
I could see the newspapers, right? And you know what it's like? I'm with the lads. I'm trying to keep it together. I don't want to let on that I'm having this, this, this coming through me. I'm thinking, fuck me. We're going to be upside down. We're going to be dead. And I can see the newspapers now, you know, drug-fueled fucking teenagers in uh, car chase, fucking kill pedestrian, blah, blah, oh, blah. God. And I could see the fucking... And I kind of tried to play it cool and say, hey, you know, Billy, let's call him. Oh, easy, easy, man. You know he's gonna, he's, he's gonna be. You know, like, easy, easy. Oh, you want to get out? You want to get out? Yeah, you know, was yeah. And pulled up. I'm like, all right, I'll get out. And, he, and drove off again. I was like, oh fuck. <clears throat> then eventually, one of us did get out. He went out to get on in the phone box. I think to ring up to. I think the only reason he was allowed out of the car because he was going to ring up for some more gear or something. Can I kind of think it was anything else? And then they drove up on the across the grass verge and up over the pavement and just parked the door shut in the in the uh, what. We used to have telephone boxes, didn't we? Just locked him in there and just we were just up across the path, people like and he was just locked in there freaking out and everyone's just laughing and it felt like it went on forever. And it was just really uncomfortable and yeah, that was about as close to me thinking, shit, I can see I can see where this goes wrong, you know? And luckily we got through it. But um That reminded me of a time I was in San Francisco with Acid Joey driving my car. I was tripping balls on LSD. And the roads up there go up and down like this. And I was like, oh, fuck it. Just wigging out, thinking we were going to crash. And um, my, I must have had a key in my pocket or something. And it was against, the coldness of the key was against, I felt it against my leg. And I thought I was peeing my pants. And I got really paranoid, thinking I was shitting myself and peeing my pants. And then the cops pulled us over. Oh. Because we were going the wrong way down a one way. And we were so lucky this cop was the coolest cop ever. And he, he looked at our license plates and he goes, God damn, you've, you guys are from Arizona. You don't know how to fucking drive out here. Because you're from Arizona, you know, I'm going to give you a pass. And he just told us to turn around and, and go the right way. That's so lucky to get someone caught. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? We had so much drugs on us and stuff. <laughs> we were all like yeah. bug-eyed and tripping. Yeah, yeah. It's... Did you do acid very much or hallucinogenics very much? I did, I did, yeah. But not, I mean, it's something I do these days in a very, very different way. You know, as I say, my reading, my learning, my the direction I've taken with, you know, understanding humans, a lot of the ancient stuff I'm intrigued by. So, you know, Egyptian, Sumerian stuff, you know, and, and the idea that once upon a time we use plants and natural substances to enlighten ourselves, you know, and to find peace and wisdom and, and, and so on. But back then, yeah, I mean, like most people, and I say this often when I do get talking about psychedelics on the podcast, because I think most of us have got that, that first experience is like that. It's with your mates when you're 16, where one of the lads is in the, and it's chaos and it's horrible and it puts you off that forever. And it's just fucking, why would you do that? And so much of that is set and setting and the reverence that you pay to it because done correctly and with reverence, there's a hell of a lot to be said for, um, you know, introspection, that truth we spoke about earlier when you, when you're willing to face yourself, you know, some of the things that I do these days, yeah, compared to back then, you, you know, I could kick myself really, but that's how it works. That's what kids do. You know, we get, we get something and we rinse it and we learn later, don't we? Yes. So you went through your family history as a young person, got a bit of chaos in you, self-medicating with drugs crazy peer group how do you hit hit rock bottom and turn that around do you know i think it was an accumulation i didn't have i mean friends going to jail i sort of saw it all f fracturally breaking around me 
And also, I think I knew that I wasn't necessarily the same as my friends, you know, because I wasn't. I wasn't where I lived was on the peripheral of of the estate. So my street was on a postcode basis, not on the estate. It was one of the the main roads that goes around the perimeter. But you go out my back gate and you're on the field, which is the field and the park's the park. And my school was on the other main road, which is between those two sides of that that estate. So as much as my mum used to remind me, we don't live on there, we live here, you know. You know, again, that, that confusion was always in me, but I always did know that I wasn't of the same blood as my mates, as much as I wanted to be. You know, I wanted, when I used to go to some of my friends' houses, I think we've all had this in various ways. You go to another family home and it runs differently and you're kind of like, wow. And if yours is maybe a bit dysfunctional, although you don't know it, I think the easiest way we measure it is like this, the ease and the relaxed environment in a home. Oh, your mum's cool and like you talk to her and or whatever that is. And I recognise that a lot. And I used to long to be in a family where, you know, you you they just felt like they were together. Hey, are you, are you staying, Ducky? Are you staying? Get, get him a chair. Come on, you have some food with us, you know. Whereas at my house, like, you know, my, my friends would be being judged for, you know, how they spoke mm. and where they were from and who they were related to. And so I wouldn't want to take them there. So that feeling of being confused, I think that was with me. Anyway, because as, as I started to come through it, I did realise, hang on a minute, I'm as much as that belonging I wanted, I'm somewhere in the middle of all this because I'm not from here. I'm not from this place. And I felt like I've taken all, I hope I've taken all of the things that I did really see that are wonderful and beautiful from it, like meaning, loyalty, family, you know, um, and kind of, tried to take what are the good bits from my life, which is kind of, you know, there's a sensibility and a, you know, from my upbringing, there is some positive things, you know, we, we were blessed in many ways, but I think coming towards the end, when I was seeing the last, I think I've always had a thing about time, Sean, I've always understood, I was saying to producer Aiden on the way here, you know, was we were trying to get to the bottom of being a human. It's like, if I recognize that time is like finite, just leaving us, leaving us, leaving us all the time so fast like we can't understand and things take time to build momentum to get comfortable to be relaxed and I've always had that in me in some way or another and I think as I started to get to like 2021 having hedonistic 15 to there it's like you know I started to see there's a pattern you know and we, we we kicked around with a lot of the older lads and I'd watched older lads who were like in the school who were like great footballers, tough lads, nice clothes. Now they're pushing bikes around with carrier bags on and they're fucking gaunt and they're fucked and you think, fucking hell, is that, what's happened to him? And I see the pattern, I see the pattern and like you realise, oh God, you know, he's however old he is. And and, I, and then I met a girl and I'd, I'd never been one for girlfriends. I was playing sowing the seeds and all that but I never had girlfriends then when I was 20 I had my first girlfriend who happened to have a baby little just one year old baby and because I'd come from a step family you know I had a good stepdad um, I kind of it, intrinsically I felt like oh this is a stable ba you know this is something solid here and I took the little girl, as well as having the relationship with her mum, really seriously. Like, I thought, right, this is... And she was from a different part of town and where I was residing, in, you know, to her was like chaos and she helped me see that a little bit, you know. 
and I started to sort of move in her world a bit, which was a little bit more, a different kind of madness. It was still pretty mad, but it was a different kind, you know, it was a bit more stable. And obviously with the little one, I, I, I don't know, I was drawn to kind of making as much effort with this little one. I now know because I've read the psychology and the science, you know, I was fixing my, my own inner child by being there for this one because recognising this child's split up from, them, you know, and it meant a lot. And to this day, I mean, she's 21 now. Um, rings me to tell me her exam results, stays with us all the time. I'm still a stepdad, even though me and her mum split up 10 years ago. So that's beautiful. You said that your mates started to get arrested. What were they getting arrested for? Violence, drugs, um, but mainly violence, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the moments was my flat was kind of one of one of the hubs, you know. Like I say, we were getting rid of bits between ourselves, you know. We were never mass putting stuff here, there, and everywhere, but among our gang was big enough that it made sense for us to supply ourselves, you know. So there was always bits and bobs around, and uh, one of my good mates who was a bit older, who was, you know, from a, a lively, colourful family, let's say. He'd been in and out of jail, and he, he was on a good path. He was on a he was he was squaring himself up, but then he just lost it one night and uh, stupid, really. Just hijacked a taxi, and uh, yeah, held a taxi up with arms, and I think he left with like four quid or something. Anyway, the uh, the police obviously come in the middle of the night. We'd all gone bowling or something. It's so fucking stupid. We'd all gone bowling or something. Mm. We all get out of the cab and I sensed something was going to happen. He was in the front and he, we all get out of my place and go and do what we we're going to do, you know? And he's like, right, you lot get out. And he took my hat off me and put my hat on. And I was like, again, we'll call him, you know, Bill. Bill, you know, come on. What, what are you doing, bro? You know, just go. Ron, I'll ring you in a bit. Anyway, I never hear from him. But the door comes through at like two o'clock in the morning and it's CD, CID, you know. And they fucking turn the place over and there's... We were quite lucky that night because there was a few bits and bobs in there and they they, they weren't interested. Um, then he got jailed for that. I think he got three years. And that was... that was I was close to that, you know. Him being in jail prior, I wasn't really around. But then it's like, wow. You know, and there was things in my house and things that were happening. I was very lucky on, on, on several occasions to not be incarcerated, you know. Did you visit him in prison? Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, harsh reality. Yeah, it was a reality check, you know. Uh, Lincoln is a is a. Um, I think is is it an a is there an A cat in Lincoln? Don't know. I think it's quite a secure prison. Yeah, I have to check that out. But um, normally I'd say Aiden get us that. <laughs> um, yeah, that was an eye opener because obviously you grow up driving past it all the time. Now I'm inside it and all of the you know. And then we went. He was over in somewhere in Leicestershire as well, I forget which jail. What was it like entering a prison for the first time? At that time for me, knowing that I was dicing with this end result and my family's stock not being that, you know, for a lot of my mates, this was just routine, you know, part of the course. For me, it was like, you know, and I'm trying to keep it together and be cool and because my identity, I'm trying to be you because I don't want to be me because I'm somewhere in the middle but knowing that that bit of me that isn't you is like scared in here. I don't like this. This is fucking freaky, you know, but you can't let on because we were the wolves in the wolf pack and we've got to be lads and, you know, and I'm bringing stuff into him as well. So I was like... You were smuggling things in. Yeah. Yeah, taking him some smoke and 
bits and bobs. So it was, um, yeah, it was an eye opener. And again, I try and treat it. I try and treat all those experiences when I can feel viscerally like warm, kind of out of my depth. I try and pay attention, try and be as vigilant as I can be, you know, and it definitely stuck with me and then going to see him elsewhere and, and, you know, moments like that. And then, you know, friends killing themselves, you know, um, and my good friend Wade started a cycle as your good friend, you know, you lost this year. I lost Wade this year, uh, just last year. He started this cycle of being incarcerated in, in, in mental institutions. Mm. And that was probably one of the most impactful times, you know, I had to go and see him in, in, in a unit in Lincoln hospital, which was spe specialized for psychiatric ward. And I'll never forget walking in there. That was as impactful as anything to me walking in there to see my friend who to me, because we survived in this world of, you know, mad drug fueled banter at the weekends and mad humor and senses of humor that are just people in the, in the cold light of day, just it's quite confusing because I didn't think there was, it was at that time that nothing wrong with him. You know, yeah, he's going hard and he's going harder than me, you know. So I'm thinking, yeah, he's probably on the edge of something, but he's, you know. And then walking in there, I never forget the first day. I walked in, saw the nurses, and it felt quite, it was like a school or something. It wasn't, you know, like a prison when you've got security everywhere and everything's quite tight, kind of quite open, and there's people wandering about, and you can see people are, you know, struggling. But the staff are cool. But then I was, I met a guy who thought he was Bruce Lee. Right, but it was like 15 stone and, you know, just, and it was, whoa, and I was kind of talking to him and I was bewildered, but like trying to engage him. And then as no sooner I got past him, then I came across Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was in there. Obviously not Paul McCartney, but this guy was re reborn as Paul McCartney, who I love, by the way. So that was, in fact, both of them people I love. I thought, this is going all right. <laughs> but no, it was weird and, and, and scary, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and then all, and then as I'd sort of been, had a little bit of a set to with these two guys and sort of, yeah, they're lovely and kind of safely, can I move on safely? I go around this corner into this room and there's, there's all these people everywhere and it, you know, there was, there's people leaning and, you know, the archetypal kind of situations and people being nurses, someone screaming and people carrying them out and, and then across the room and sort of near the back doors, the French doors out into the garden, there's Wade and he's got like a two little bottle of, well, a two-litre bottle, which he's filled up and he's made a potion. So it's like a big Coke bottle with the wrapper off, but he's he's got all sorts in it, you know. There's tea bags and it's this wisdom potion he's got. And like, and I go and see him and we're talking and he starts telling me, every, whoever, oh, you met Bruce, you've met Paul, <laughs> and this is so-and-so. And, you know, and, and I was, again, you trying to be brave or be, you know, all right with it all. But in my gut, I'm like, Jesus Christ, man, this is you know, and talking to Wade and they'd sort of seem okay, but then he'd flip and be a bit like, you know, why don't you drink some of this? You know, you need to, mm -hmm. and coming out of there was like, well, and that happened often. And then it became scarier over time. You know, this cycle started, started to happen with him where he'd be, as I started to build my life up and become, as I say, I was in that relationship, I had this stepdaughter, I'd moved along a little bit from my core gang of mates where we were doing crazy things starting to build a bit more of a stable uh, footprint for myself. And then when I would go and see him, he was going the other way, you know? And then it wasn't Lincoln Psychiatric Unit. Then he was, you know, I'd get, I'd, someone would call me and say, you know, Wade's been, he's been locked up and strapped up 
and he's in Barnsley in a mm. secure unit. And then this cycle starts dropping and then he would get out and obviously he'd be he'd be quite good, you know. He might be he could be ten stone or it could be sixteen stone. And depending on where he was on his on the cycle of meds, you know, he might be on steroids and whatever different drugs to kind of balance him out. And for a little while he'd be who he was and you'd think, Come on, Wade, you can do it now, you know, you're there now, like this is good, you're in great good shape. All we gotta do is stay away from the obvious and try and try and build on this. And obviously I, couldn't, I wasn't spending all that time with anymore. I was going back to my girlfriend and my stepdaughter. And anyway, this cycle goes on. And over the course of 10 years, yeah, you just eventually it ended last year. Yeah. And oh yeah, it was, it was, it hit me really hard because yeah, it probably was him losing his way that if I did have a bottom of the bottle, I guess subconsciously that was probably it, you know, because he's my best friend. And we used to, pride ourselves on being the last man standing we could pretty much go anywhere where we were from yeah. and like where is everyone what's up here why you know let's keep going kind of thing and to see him lose it made me think fuck you know so yeah that was that was probably my moment i'd say what was the cause of death though? well man it was a multiple organ failure he was found at his little um he had like one of these kind of, you know, secure apartments where they're kind of half cared for and half independent. Um, he was found on his sofa with his headphones on, which when I heard that, I was like, you know, because music, I mean, he was encyclopedic. He, he introduced me to so much music and, and he loved it. It was his, I imagine like you when talking about reading the book, you know, the moments just being gone. I think for Wade, that was where he was happiest. So to hear that um, was that's how they found him. I don't know exactly entirely the details, but I imagine and I think from what I do know is that it's just an accumulation of the lifestyle, the meds. I think he would do well for so long on these cycles where he wouldn't do stuff, and then eventually he'd hit the gear, not sleep. And sleep is something that I've learned that is just so important. And I think with all his meds, I think just his body just couldn't do it anymore. So you said that you had a few close calls with the authorities then. What happened there? It's just mindless violence, you know. Mindless violence on a couple of occasions. Fights with, you know, other lads who have probably felt just like me, you know, thinking they need to be brazen. We're from this end, you're from that end. We're all pissed up in town. You looked at her, just shit, nonsense. And before you know it, you're swinging boots across the high street and, you know... Um, and drugs, you know, there was a time, come to think of it, a, a similar time, there was, I was living with a friend of mine who was, this is when we used to come here and leave here with, we made some associations here in, in Liverpool. And that was pretty heavy because they were heavy and uh, it started to get pretty real. Yeah, this was a, this was a similar time. And uh, they, we, at, at the, where we were sharing a home, there was, if the door had come through, even though I was not directly doing the deals, I was like a wingman of my mate, just kind of, you know, I'd have been doing a long stretch, you know. We had thousands of ecstasy tablets in there. Kilos of, back then, hashish, um, weed, uh, nine bars of cocaine. There was 
ludicrous amounts of stuff in our house. And I used to, and he was losing his way. He was on the crack and he was losing his way. And I was like, man, this is getting out of hand. And when he would go on missing because he'd been on a bender, my phone would start ringing just by association, you know? And, uh, yeah, the guys from here came down to us and there was guns put on the table and a, a conversation was had. And, uh, yeah, I rang my dad in Thailand, got my shit out of there, and I was on a plane within, well, within a week. How much money was owed? I think not, not a massive amount in the grand scheme of it, but about 40, 50 grand, I think. So enough Let's for a get, couple of daft 23-year-old kids. Let's get guns out. Yeah. Well, yeah. There is, yeah this guy's sister was going to be kidnapped. His divorced mum and dad. Uh, as I understand it, I had to get together and like remortgage something or get a, do something to get this thing paid off. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be some serious repercussions. And yeah, come to back to your question, was there? But yeah, between Wade and that, yeah, I guess that was it because I did. I went to my dad's, and this ties in actually. You're doing therapy on me, Sean. <laughs> I rang my dad, who obviously I. My dad, it's so strange because my biological dad, I've got my stepdad as well, who I get on great with, but he was on the rig, so he was never there. So my dad got taken out of my life. But then my stepdad, who was cool, but you got to remember, at this point, he had three, he's taken on a woman with three kids, seven, five, and 18 months. It's a lot for a 26-year-old guy. But he was on the rig, so he'd be gone for long periods, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever. So... <clears throat> With my biological dad, he, I could, you know, when I was talking about, I couldn't talk to my mum, I couldn't, you know, I had to change who I was. With my biological dad, I, I didn't have to do that, but he wasn't there. So when the shit really hit the fan and I'd gone through all these cycles of hating him because he's left me and how could you fucking leave me? Like we all do and it's fine because this is what we do when we're in the shit, you know, we reach out and I reached out to my dad and I just said, look, dad, I'm in the shit. And I was honest with him. I just said, look, this is what's happening. You know, I'm in the shit with some serious people and I don't want to do it anymore and I need to just fucking get away. You'd get on a plane, got me a ticket and over I went. And I made a point, I spent, I think, three months in Thailand and I just disciplined myself. No drugs, no yabba, no fucking crystal meth, no weed even. And weed's been something that I'm, I use, you know, it's my alcohol, if you like. I just didn't do anything and I tried to rehabilitate myself and just give my, my, my t some time to calibrate my brain of all of this incessant chaos do you know what I mean and realise I, well, I was 23 at that time I think and I'd split up with the the, the uh, girlfriend who I had been with and I just told myself you know what I've got to get fucking real here man people are dying people are getting taken away my friend's fucking locked up I can't pretend this is everybody else I'm doing this so uh I did, I made a little pact with myself and sort of, my, my, my nana, Betty, my dad's mum, the matriarch I spoke about earlier, she always used to say to me, you know, throw your spot, whatever it is, throw your spot. And when you get there, throw it again. And I kind of thought of that and I thought, right, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to take my job seriously now, you know, and I'm going to, I know I'm at a point where I've got enough experience in my job. If I pay attention, I can get, I can probably go up a couple of gears, get my own set up, earn some decent money and get myself a house in the next couple of years. And that was like my target. I'll get a house. Just seemed like a plausible, reasonable thing to aim at. You know, at 20, by the time I'm 25, I buy a house. 
And I uh, I did those three months, got to know my dad a little bit, although that ended fucking <laughs> hell, actually. Before you say how it ended, um, when you went to stay with your dad, yeah. how long had it been since you had last seen him? And how did that feel to be looking at him face to face in Thailand for the first time? I first went to see him at 14. He'd gone over there when I was... He'd gone over there sort of intermittently and spending long spells from about the age of 12, I think. And then I, I, I was 14 when I first went and I had a three-week holiday with my nana and my cousin. <clears throat> and at that point, you know, I'm, I was seven when they split up and I'd, I'd had a good couple of years going every weekend to, or every other weekend to see him, maybe even three years. So I had a decent, you know, and as I read it now, the seven-year cycle, a child from naught to seven, you know, a lot of mapping gets done then. So I felt like I was in a decent position with him. But then when I hit those teenage years, after that first visit, and there's a big gap before you see him again, and then the rhetoric from your mother, you know, your dad's this, your dad's that, you don't care, and he's out there in the sun, blah, blah, blah. And, you, and I'm getting into those angsty years, and I start to, you know... <clears throat> And then I sort of push it out of my mind and disregard it. Ah, fuck it, whatever, because I'm lost in the, in, the, in the drugs and the party and myself. So by the time I get to like 23, I think I'd been out there a couple more times. But it's weird because you're just in like a holiday mode. You're kind of everybody aware. He's aware that this is a bit weird and that we've got to try and cram everything into this. You know, and I don't want to sit with you all day. I want to go down the beach. And like, there's all that weird politics that happens because you're trying to cram your biological bonding into like a fucking holiday where I want to be on holiday and you want me to be in your life and you're at work and we, you know do you know what I mean it's strange were you chasing women and drugs out there I didn't chase it I, I just knew where to find it <laughs> I just knew where to find it yeah and, and yeah yeah of course I mean you don't yeah you're a young man you yeah write a passage there but no I mean when I did get there and I was in the shit I was humble enough with myself to sort of put everything else aside. And I just knew I had to concentrate on getting my shit together. And because my dad listened to me, you know, even though I knew he wouldn't have been happy to hear what he had to hear, you know, he supported me. He said, right, get yourself over here. And he helped me just put some stuff in order. And, and it felt <clears throat> probably the most poignant thing about it was like, whatever the topic, the fact that I've been kidnapped amongst all that, I'd been kidnapped as well. It was, just nice to have him listen to me and not judge me and just find a way around it for me and help me and be there for me. That was so meaningful. What was the circumstances of you getting kidnapped? So again, around this same time, um, when the guys from here came to our place, my ex-girlfriend, Liverpool three people. Yeah. That's where we are today. It's, um, it's, my the girlfriend I split up with, she started to to see an older lad who was an infamous gangster in our city, and his boss was European linked, you know, big, big stuff. And because <clears throat> I had a relationship with my stepdaughter still, so after those couple of years we were together, she would still, I would still see her. So we'd split up with the mum. But I was, you know, she would want to see me and mum would play me a bit looking back, you know, oh, she's drawn you a thing, you know. And you know what, Sean, subconsciously, I I did see that and take that as ways for, because if, if the little one wanted to see me at the weekend, in a way it was like a beacon of light for me because it, it was something that I knew. If, she, if I was seeing her, if I was to take her skating or to the cinema or something on a Saturday, it was one of the things that would stop me from going out and just getting smashed. 
So it was really useful to me. And I think one of the, the reasons why we've got such a bond today, you know, because in a way she saved me when I first got with her and just bringing her up as a man and like, fuck me. So she helped me to grow up. But um, yeah, I had her in my life. My girlfriend, ex-girlfriend went on to kick with this other guy, but the lad I'm living with, who we get involved with these guys, they're all interconnected. So there's things happening between her new fella and my lad I'm living with. And because I've got little one in my life, we're all in this very close web. And I'm a young lad. He's 10 years older. I'm in a band. I'm a, I'm a you know, I'm her ex. I'm her age. And he was always very sceptical of me, obviously. And then uh, I think someone said some shite that he took as gospel. And then I got coerced through... Um, I'd done some work for him actually on his properties. You know, I, I was always aware that they were just keeping me close because I knew enough, you know, keeping me close. So I would just go along with it because I was kind of like, I got to. So I would do work for him. And then one day they pulled me up. Oh, where are you? I've got, I've got a job for you to look at. I says, oh, I'm just at uh, so-and-so's ass and something didn't feel right. Oh, I'll come and get you now. All right. Okay, yeah, 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 it's a good job, you'll like it. It's just a big house in fucking blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah. Anyway, I put the phone down. I was living with my friend's sister at the time, my sister's friend. She's like, you're right? I said, like, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, again, Bill is going to come and pick me up. She's like, really? I said, yeah, oh, yeah, don't worry, it's cool. It's a job, like, I've done some work for him. Right. Anyway, I go and get in the back of this car. Mate, he gets out, he opens the back door, get in this BMW, get in. And then in the passenger seat is his, is his boss. <laughs> who turns around to me just in the seat and he's like, hello, mate, do you know who I am? I said, yeah, yeah. And then Bill says, right, mate, we need a chat, don't we? So we're just going to have a little drive and then we're driving and I'm looking out the window of this car <laughs> and I'm thinking, right, the good thing I had on my side, Sean, was I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't done anything with her, yeah? <clears throat> I hadn't, you know, slept with her, done any of that stuff. <clears throat> I totally got it that, like, Someone must have said something, and I can see how two and two makes five, And but I know I haven't done anything. Whether that's going to save me or not, I don't know. So <clears throat> I'm looking out this window thinking, right, I've got to be composed, stay composed, you know, like, but one minute is slow motion, next minute is fucking, you know. And we pull up in this, like, disused industrial park, and uh, he gets out, they get out, they get me out. And back then it was little shitty flip foams and stuff. And he says, you know, he gave me his 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 sound bite, which was like, you know, so uh, you and her then, innit? I'm like, what? what? Yeah, don't be clever. Mate, his boss is like, you know, just typical mafia stuff. Like, he's just like, hey, up, Bill. He said, he's a good looking kid. I won't blame her. Look at him. Look at him. Handsome lad. You're in a band, aren't you? You're a singer, aren't you? And he's like making me laugh. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> And then out of the nowhere, his boss just goes, do you know what, if it was me, he says, there's an hammer in that glove box. If it was me, your head would be all over the side of this car now. And I'm like, I'm thinking, fuck, you know, like, I haven't done anything, I haven't done anything. And I'm, you know, and he just says, where's your phone? And I'm like, you know, he takes my fucking phone off me. And he texts her as if he's me, yeah. Now, luckily, these two guys are a bit older and I had one of these little flip phones when the little ones come out and back then everyone had a Nokia and there was a bit more to get into the fucking thing. And I also think that text, the way individuals text is very different, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things that saved me because he sent this text to her, which was basically like, hey, you know, where are you? I think he's out of town, blah, blah, blah. Let's fucking hook up and all this. So I often was thinking, well, she's, 
I've never done that. She's not, not in me, unless she thinks I've had too much to fucking, you know, whatever. Anyway, we send the text and then we're all just fucking waiting. And I'm thinking there's a hammer in that glove box. I know he's, people have disappeared, let's say, in the past. Fuck. You know, and in the mean, and while we're waiting, like they're just having a bit of a joke with me and that, you know. And I'm just sort of kind of going, going along with it in a, in a weird way. I mean, you've been in situations where you go in autopilot. Nothing happens, no, no response. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, you know, she's got to know this isn't me. And then they do it again, send another one, right? No response. By which time I'm saying, look, Bill, I fucking haven't done nothing. I get it, yeah, it's complicated. I live with him and you're seeing her and little ones in my life and, I, you know, but I, I'm not, listen, I haven't done anything. That's all I can fucking tell you. But then it gets a bit political because my mate's on his turf and stuff's, you know, and there's a bit more to it. Anyway, nothing comes back on the phone. She doesn't get back. We get back in the car. Uh, no, that was it. Before we get back in the car, Bill sort of cocks one, yeah, to, to throw at me. And I, and I trained boxing at the time, so I just naturally slipped. And uh, his boss actually went, hey, oh, you daft cunt, what are you doing? And stopped him. And we all get back in the car. And they turn around to me and say, right, happy with that. We'll move on. Shake hands. We'll drop you off. Where do you want to be? I says, oh, I'll just go back there. Drop me off back there and, you know, we shake hands. I get out. I go back in the house and my <laughs> sister's mate's like, are you all right? I was like... And then obviously we have to start ringing around people and finding out what the fuck's been said, what's going on here and what's happened. And I couldn't get in touch with her right away, the ex, because who knows what's going on. But the next day I go to work and put the feelers out. She gets in touch with me the next day. What the fuck are you doing sending me messages like that? What the fuck are you doing? What if that had been blah, blah, blah? And I was like, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't let her know. I just like go along with it. Oh, I was, you know, fucking off my head. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Blah blah blah. It was only years later when I actually told her what the crack was. How did she react? Well, by that time, the relationship with this guy had gone tits up, and she'd had her fair share of what happens when you piss proper people off. So it all came out, and uh, yeah, obviously it is what it is. But yeah, that thinking back to your question, that would have been a part of me thinking, what the fuck, yeah. That's not good. Was that the hurriest moment in your life? Obviously, you can never say how genuine their intentions were and how far they were prepared to go. I mean, yeah, it's one of them, surely, yeah. What was also up there then with that one? Um, so when we were leaving Thailand... So when I'd gone and rehabilitated myself off the back of all that and thought, no, this is it, got to, got to grow up. <clears throat> One of the businesses my family had out there was obviously back in, in talking 2004 or something, Thailand, Asia, lots of knockoff gear, right? Websites just really kicking in. So a lot of the business we were doing, which was websites selling gear globally. So I had an alias, and I would be, I'd be running one of these websites, which was a football shirts website. So you were an AC Milan fan. You want an AC Milan Maldini shirt. I'll send you it and it'll be good money and a good shirt. <clears throat> so we were well into that. I mean, my dad and a couple of his associates had built houses 
you know, built villas off of David Beckham 23. <laughs> anyway, me and my dad had had a little bit of a Barney and uh, we were supposed to go to Bangkok to see a new, uh, a new supplier. And we'd had a bit of a Barney, I think because I was getting up late and playing my guitar and not getting straight on my email and, and so on. Nothing much, but I didn't go with him to, to um, Bangkok. And then uh, he rang me up like a day later and said, look, boy, don't worry about that. Sorry about that. Look, let's get back on track. Get yourself on the, uh, the Patty of Bangkok bus. It's fucking eight bar or whatever it was. And I'll meet you here and we'll, we'll crack on. I'm like, yeah, cool. So as I get on the bus from Pattaya to go to Bangkok, I arrive in Bangkok in this nice hotel, sat in there with him. He gets a phone call. He's on the phone and I'm just watching like the Muay Thai on the telly. And I just start twigging like there's a tension in the phone call. What's going on? You know, whatever, watching that. And he puts the phone down. He's like, deep breath, like, right, where's all your paperwork? I'm like, what? He says, the... Thai police have just raided Jesse's, which was our restaurant, which is where I was based. They've taken all the computers, they've raided a couple of other people's houses who are in our little little business and they've taken everything. And what it was, it was corporate lawyers, Nike, Adidas, etc., had fucking put the feelers out. And one of the lads who was sending parcels had put a return address to one of our houses. We had some slaughterhouses, we used to call them, where we'd have a couple of Thai guys in there who were earning their crust by just packaging and selling, moving the shirts and stuff. So I had an alias on all my paperwork, but my mum had been sending my actual post with my name on it to me, which was in my room. So they've scooped everything up. We're in, we're holed up in, in, um, in Bangkok, they're in Pattaya. All the business, all the computers, all the stuff's in Pattaya. So my dad's fucking, we're, we end up in this hotel. We get a hotel out, the sticks out of the way. He's just on the phone, tells me, you do not fucking leave this place. Yeah. You go to the pool, you come back here. That is it. The pool's on the top. I remember because I read a Madonna book. It's the only book I fucking had. And it was actually brilliant. <laughs> it was actually really, really good. But um, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, fuck. And then when I eventually got to speak to him, because he he'd done everything he needed to do on the phone quick, he's like, look, this is what's happened, you know. And I was due to go back to England. I was literally at the, at the end of my trip and he was going to have to come with me. And then it was a case of how, you know, it was passports and it was a, it was a full job of, you know, for about, I forget how long it was, it was a couple of three days. We were just on the sticks of Bangkok in this hotel, holed up, just waiting. Phone calls, you know, getting a green light. My dad's disabled. And one of the things that I think really helped us is when we got in the airport to get out, he was, you know, we were to the front of the queues and we were just waiting for the, on the shoulder. Never forget looking at him when we were on the plane coming back, just like, you know, and then he had to be here for a while. Yeah, it was, it was tricky. It was a tricky time. That was, that was pretty life-affirming because if you get, you know, locked up somewhere like that, as, you know, lots of people have, it's, it's not straightforward. Have you ever been locked up anywhere? Only in jail overnight, not in prison, you know, but yeah, yeah, spent many a night in cells, yeah. So you get back from Thailand then, what, your mid-twenties? Yeah. What's your life like? So I think that I make this executive decision to be smart about the drug game. So I'm now disciplined enough to not do what I used to do, which was be carnage. I'm saving money. I'm working hard. My focus is on my work. I'm building my career up and doing good at my job, earning money, and the money's coming in, and I'm satisfied with that. 
but I'm getting rid of some stuff on the side just to my mates who are doing it quite a lot still. And I see the opportunity to pay my rent by just these lads. And I'm disciplined enough to not do it. And it's just a handful of my mates who are like, you, you know someone, don't you? I say, yeah, I'll that. So I did that for a little while. Um, it was kind of back and forth with little one's mum. You know, we were on and off. We'd have two years on, a year off, three years on. Um, but when I got back, yeah, I was doing that, living with a friend, and then I'd built up some money, and I just wandered into town one day, and I had some money in the bank, and I thought, you know what, I'll just find out about a mortgage. I'll just find out where, where what the bankman says. I don't even know what is the routine with it. I've never... And I went in and sat with him, and he said, oh, yeah, he said, you know, this amount of money, if you find somewhere, come back to us, and you're good to go. I was like, what, credit? And you're like, yeah, yeah. So I said, oh, wicked. So I did that, and I found somewhere that was nice, and guy who kidnapped me and my ex he'd now been caught on a conspiracy and had seven years and a whole lot of Lincoln people got taken down in that so then she, me foolishly I'd gotten over her as well as my drugs and everything in Thailand and then when I got back and I was on this good road she kind of her life had gone the other way and he disappeared and then she's reeling me back in and I'm like, you know, like a fucking idiot thinking, oh, yeah, it'll all work out. Yeah, and uh, I did buy a house. I've got a house, which I own to this day, which I'm really, really proud of. Because when I do look back at the chaos, I think, thank fuck I did that. Thank fuck. Yeah, I did, you know, and my, my family live in that home now, you know. So, yeah, I, 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 I did manage to get back on. It was a bit tumultuous with on and off with her. Um. But yeah, I did slowly and it does take time. It takes a long time to integrate yourself into, because it's not just, I don't take drugs anymore. I don't do this or, you know, it's your friends. It's the groups you move in, the places you go. It's, it's yeah, it's a long job. How long did the band go for? Oh, so. I've been in probably five variations. The things that happens with local bands is, you know, you, you start off, who can play the bass? You'll do, play the bass. He does my head in, get him out, we know somebody, and then eventually you arrive at like a, you know, four or five of you that have found yourselves because you've all been on the on the path. So by the time I got to, I want to say 25, I would have been, I'd have bought my house, I'd have just bought my house. I was in a good period with this girl and, uh, a friend of mine asked me to join his band. My band was a bit raucous. My band I was in at the time was Live Riot. And we were a local band, kind of blue-collar rock. We were on the, all the pub watch meetings because everywhere we used to ram it. And because of the demographic that followed us, it was football lads and it was chaos. But this lad asked me to join his band and they were a much, much kind of more cultivated uh, band. And we set this new band up, Lost Souls which was kind of electronic. It was incorporating electronic music and I was in a better place and it all kind of, again, like I said in my younger years, having the bands just gave me something. And at this point in my life, being an adult and now having a home and this kind of more established band, more musical band, it was again, the same thing happening. It was me having some catharsic kind of release and security. And this band went on and we did well. We, we ended up down in, I met a guy in a field in Spain, right? I was at a festival Benny Kasim festival. It's a famous festival for any 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 of the festival goers out there. It's a great festival, and it's because you can make it a 
seaside holiday as well. Go for a week. It's just near the beach. You're in the beach all day, festival all night. Amazing. Our band's just done a four-track EP. We've been told by people who've heard it that, like, this is really good. You need to see this person, that person. I'm buzzing with it. I'm on this... This, this feels like I'm on this level now. I'm on this new trajectory. Things are clearing. I'm at these festivals, but I'm not crashing drugs like I used to. I'm having a bit of a party. I'm going back to my tent, having a sausage roll, <laughs> going to sleep. And uh, I'm in this field, 100,000 odd people, 90,000 people in this field, and Elba are about to come on. And I'd recently met Guy Garvey on another escapade in Manchester, and he was really nice, and I was off me nut that night. And I was stood next to these guys, who sort of said hello to me and these, their girls were dancing around us and that and I, and I said, oh, Elbow, I'm looking forward to this. You know, we met Guy Garvey the other month and he was lovely and I was like off me nut and he was really, really accommodating. And this guy just goes, yeah, guys, he's a, he's a gem. He's a lovely lad, wonderful to work with. And I went, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh. anyway, I don't, I sort of twig, like, wonderful to work with. Anyway, we get chatting a bit more and I kind of keep it cool. And I hadn't told him that I'm in a band or anything. Turns out he's the head of A&R for Universal Music. <laughs> and I'd just read The Alchemist before I went here, yeah? Which, which, which was... The Alchemist was one of the books that really did help me to see, like, oh, wow, you know, maybe it's been here the whole time and maybe the journey's okay. And, like, so I'm on this, like, for me, like a little spiritual epiphany of, like, you know, one thing leads to another. And then, fuck, I mean, this... So I play it cool. I don't bang on. I'm in a band and we enjoy watching it together. And then as we're going to leave, I say, look, you know, I'm in a little little band and we've actually just done an EP. And back then it was CDs. I think MP3 players had just come out, but he said, well, I'll tell you what, here's my card. He says, next time you're in the city, you know, come and see me and we'll have a listen and we'll see what we might be able to do. So I'm like, fucking wow, what's the chances the alchemist I am, fucking Santiago, what is happening? You know, like I'm ringing up my lads back home saying, boys, because I was always the promoter, I was always the singer in the band, but I've been networking and just sticking my neck out. That thing about wanting to be heard, I'm willing to speak to people, find out where we can go. So I'm ringing them and saying, you need to fucking get shit ready, get a press pack ready. You're not going to believe it. I've just been talking to the head of A&R at the biggest record label in the world, in England, you know, of the head of A&R in England. And his sound. And obviously I'd met Guy and he, his friends were Guy and it was all kind of playing in. So anyway, we, we the, the lads are really, really buzzing. And yeah, that's what happens. I go back, we put a pack together, we go and see him in Kensington High Street. We go in there and it's like the gold records on the wall. I felt like Macaulay Culkin in like, you know, <laughs> New York. It was mad, really mad. And like of all the years of, you know, making music to enjoy it, but also imagining, oh, imagine if we could turn this into a, you know, when we get in the lift and we're going up the lift and I'll never forget because it was like the offices in Big. Remember the film Big with Tom Hanks? I've not seen it. Oh, you've not seen Big? Get that written down in there, David. Big for Sean. <laughs> what a film. Tom Hanks, anyway, he gets a job in in a New York where he's he's a kid who's made a wish and becomes a man, but he's a kid in a man's body. But he gets a job testing toys and the offices in there are just really kind of Google-esque, I suppose you'd say these <laughs> days. Everything's like basketball hoops and everything's like freewheeling in these offices. That's what it was like in there. We got in there and there's basketball hoops and everything was like like a party in there. <laughs> yeah, and we got chatting to Jody and we played him our stuff, which he loved. But he, he pointed out, he said, look, we're at a point of real change. He said, see that box over there in the corner of his office? And it was full of CDs. He said, look, I'll give you an example. This is, we get hundreds of these every day. He says, we've got one like yours, look, which has got artwork in it, CD with artwork and a little 
flyer which tells us about the band and what you're about and who your influences are. Then he's got one with just someone scribbled on a blank CD. Then he's got these like proper, you know, brochures with all this glossy kind of fucking... He says, let me show you this. Turns his screen around and goes on YouTube. And he says, look at this kid here. He says, we've, we've been watching this kid. He's in Croydon or wherever he was. He's got a million hits lot on this fucking rap in his front garden. He says, you've got, he says, what you've got there is great. He says, it's like Stone Roses. It's like Depeche Mode. It's fucking current. I love what you're doing. You're clearly good at what you do, but you've got to create and build something in, in, the, in the way it's going. <clears throat> so he said, look, what I want to do, I want to put you in touch with someone to look after you from a legal point of view. We, you, we, and he gave me two contacts for someone to look after us from a legal point of view to then dictate getting a manager and an agent and all that. <clears throat> which we did. We followed up with that and we ended up, we, again, I made a big mistake. We had, we chose Stephen Kempner from one of the biggest, I mean, they look after Pink Floyd, Kylie, Robbie Williams. And then we went to this other one, which was called Harbottle and Lewis. And they were like up and coming, still had a lot of good artists, but she, the girl we spoke to was really, really enthusiastic and was like, oh, we could do this. We could do that. We could put nights on. We could get you guys down. You know, the, you know, you like the new stone roses from the East Midlands. And we ended up going with, you know, when we got to the other building, it was bigger and, stone, you know, pink when we chose them. But of course, we were just like a fucking, you know, nothing. So we made a mistake there because years later, with the current band I'm in now, Andronochrome, when we did our first record deal with a, a, a company, I had the contract look through and I rang Harbottle and Lewis and I thought, I wonder if Chloe's still there. Who runs Harbottle and Lewis now? She does. So we missed the fucking boat there, going for the big glitz and all the rest of it. But anyway, that journey was amazing, and that band did really well. And then off the back of that, we ended up in really close to a record deal with um, R&S Records. Now, for anybody who knows the dance music, um, you know Joey Beltram was there, Aphex Twin. You know they've been they've been a pioneer in dance music. Belgium label, Renard and Sabine. If you're watching, if you see this, much love, lovely people. We went and had meetings with them and they were touting us as like, cause it was when the, by this time the stone roses were talking about making a comeback and they had kind of put us in the slipstream of that. Like we're like this new form of stone roses. And it was like, they were doing posts on their, on their pages where we were like, right, we need to have sabbatical meetings with our bosses. You know, like, we're going to be going on tour. This is happening. And it all went South because his business partner in in the sub in the sub uh, label um, of of R and S, which is where he he was putting out the indie music, if you like, was with David Boyd. And David Boyd used to be the chief exec of Virgin, and he'd signed like the Verve and people like that. And they had a band each on the label at the time, and we were like the second band that Renart was going to bring. And he ran it by David Boyd, and David Boyd was not sold on us. He thought we were a bit derivative, or not. He just wasn't sold on us. So then oh, it fell through. Right. And at that point, we'd done like seven years in that band. By mm -hmm. which time, I'd bought my house. I'd had my first son. Two other kids were my mate. You know, five kids had been born. Mortgages, and like, it felt to me like. I mean, I'll send you something. You can link it in. But we were good, and we were good enough. And I was at peace. That like, do you know what? I'm 30, whatever I am now. We've done this for five, six years. I totally know we were good enough. We wouldn't have got where we were going. It's just a look of the draw, timing of the ships. It hasn't worked out. And actually, I've got to think about what I'm going to do now. The whole, that whole trajectory I've spoken about today, about finding myself, whether it's with my friends or in my music, I kind of realised I'm in a good place with my, my now wife at this point. And 
I don't I don't think my identity and the dream to be a musician has to be the fore of everything. Now, now I've got to build for my family and get real, and I'm going to be a bedroom guitarist or whatever. And that was the end of that. That was like me making peace with that. So, Sam, it sounds like we have reached the saner years of your life now. Yeah. yeah. So how did you manage to get off the drugs? Just little by little. Um, partying became, I think, like I said earlier about pattern recognition, you just realise things are patterns, everything's patterns, behaviours patterns, you know, structures are patterns, momentum that those patterns create. Um, that time thing I was talking about before, I've always had some kind of awareness that, you know, time's running out and I'm, in, I'm at this stage of my life and really should I be doing this thing at this stage? And I think been lucky enough to, like for instance, when when just before Lost Souls, so when I'd split up with that, my previous partner and as I'd said, I'd already started the mindset. I'd had the click, you know, I'd gone to Thailand, got myself cleaned up, got my house and my drug taking and my partying was at a, was at a fraction of what it used to be because my mindset was much more about building a life and not just maintaining a party. Um, and then when I've, when I've split up with that girl for the last time, that was a real epiphany moment for me because it was like, you know, I really have got to just, cause she liked to party. And so it was still there and it could be a volatile relationship. So I started to learn a bit about the relationship, started to actually see, because when I was parted out, it's just carnage. It's just normal, you know, just crazy shit's happening, arguments, volatility. But as, um, as it started to, you know, as we got older, I just started to realise this isn't how the relationship's supposed to be. You know, this is, this is unhealthy, you know. And when it finally finished, I had a mad year of just adapting to what's the future going to be. But I kind of made this decision to read more. I, I didn't know why, but I just thought, I'm watching all this shit on telly, you know, whatever it is, you know, watching stuff on telly. I should, I know I should probably, at this point, the way I'm feeling, I should probably try and... So I, I, I booked myself on a college course, an evening course to learn. At the time, it was referred to as Clate which is a computer IT course, just learning basic word processing. Because where I was at with my little business, I was a subcontracting um, builder, but I was just working for one guy invoicing and I had ideas one day to do my own thing and I knew I'm going to have to know how to get around a computer. So I thought it's going to be useful. I'll do that through gritted teeth, you know, making that transition from doing whatever you want when you want to. Wednesday night, I go to college and sit with all these people that try and do this stuff that I'm not sure. To this day, I mean, I learned how to get through an Excel sheet, but it's all gone now. Luckily, there's different apps and what have you now. But no, trying to make that mindset. Ash loves Excel sheets. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Powerful Ash Meikle with, with the Excel, yeah. But yeah, I, I just started to make, you know, reading books more, just a bit more present. And obviously one book leads to another, you know, and reading some really interesting stories and getting into moving towards the philosophy stuff and then plant medicines. A friend of mine got really into his plant medicine and, um, you know, brought me in. So no longer am I referring to my experience with psychedelics, like we previously mentioned the chaos and the young, you know, disrespect of it. But now in a way where I want to seek something out of it, learn about myself and pay reverence and go for a difficult journey you know, hopefully grow and come out the other side and 
yeah, little by little, that was that's what what I did. And then in doing that, I kind of had a th- thought to myself like the next girl that I do sort of settle in with, I'm probably going to be about 30. You know, I was like 27, 28 when that one finished and I had a that year, couple of years of transition. And I remember thinking, you know, if, if, and I've said this to some of my friends who have struggled to make the transition, who have struggled to break the momentum. You know, tell me about the girl that you'd like to see come through that door, you know, who you, would, who you could spend your life with, you know. What is she? What qualities has she got? And this was like my little metaphor I'd use in my mind. It's like, well, you know, she'd be smart. She'd be pretty. She'd have, you know, she'd be relaxed. You know, she'd be, you know, all the key things we all want. Not dating a mafia employee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and not just, you know, using the currency of attention, you know, uh, to manipulate your way through life. But yeah, and I remember saying that to friends and then thinking about that for myself. And then thinking, right, well, if that woman came through the door, what does she find? Is it the little stoner who's on his last £10 playing FIFA, you know, doing all these crazy things? Or or, or is it somebody who can stand on his own two feet and have some ownership uh, of himself and a, and, and a trajectory, a future? And So I kind of started to think about that and just put myself in a position where I was just thinking about myself, you know, educating myself, get into grips with myself and then I met my wife, you know. Which, Congratulations, which, man. You know, and she's just, she's amazing. She's, she's, she's amazing. And I think, you know, as lucky as I was to meet her, I do believe that those moments of introspection and honesty, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, to, to be honest with yourself and to hopefully have that, you know, come out of you, it, it's, it finds it, it finds itself in others. How did you meet her? <laughs> okay. So back to lost souls. We, 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 we used to play all over. We played here, we played, I think Zanzibar here, a couple of other places here in Liverpool. We'd play a uh, London mostly, but Manchester. Um, and then we'd done the weekend. I met Guy Garvey. We'd been to watch Oasis in, uh, in Manchester. And we had a gig when we got back and uh, we were pretty pretty early in the venue and there were some girls in there and we got chatting to these girls who were just having drinks while we were sound checking and all that. And then they stuck around because they liked what we were doing. And one of these girls was at university in Northumberland. Anyway, she starts following us on our, on our Lost Souls Facebook or whatever, inst- inst- whatever it was. And um, I just noticed every now and again when I'd scroll through, because I'd do a lot of our posting, that this girl who'd followed us, there was another girl who would comment on her stuff who was always really kind of like far out and funny and she had bright red hair and she was just, her honesty kind of like came through, in, in, you know. <laughs> anyway, I just noticed it a few times and then I and then one day I saw her pop up again and I thought, I'll click on this girl. Click on this girl. I'm looking at her, oh, yeah, you know, we've all done it, you know, scrolling through, all oh, right, yeah, it's this, that and the other. Anyway, I'd like, I must have liked a couple of things. And this was before the wisdom of knowing what you do on social media, because obviously this person goes, fucking hell, he's, he's right down there. He must have been on here for an hour and a half looking at my <laughs> shit. Anyway, I, I'm working away in digs at the time. I wake up one morning and uh, I've got an inbox and it's like, who are you? I think I'm in love. And I was like, well, fucking hell. My mate in the bed next to me says, what's up? I says, I says, you know that girl I was looking at? I says, I think, 
She's just told me she's in love. Anyway, rah, 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 that's just, you know, we start having a bit of Hold a minute, you've got a woman telling you're in love on one hand, and you've got a mate in bed with you on the other yeah, side. Yeah, <laughs> what, yeah. What's going on? And a mate in bed with me next to me on the other side. But it's funny, Sean, because even then, even working away, even though I'd concentrated myself into working and earning a book and kind of trying to stabilise myself with my career, yeah. because I was in building and because it was coming out of the recession, we were working away down in, in London and stuff and on the on, in Surrey and affluent places. We were doing like stints for a year at a time. Like yeah. we'd come back on a weekend, back down, back down on a weekend. But it was, I'm working with a load of lads who were just scooping, you know, like yeah, we'd finish yeah. work, back to the digs and everyone's scooping in the, in the <laughs> fucking work clothes. Then we're having a quick bath and we're back scooping. And I was like, yeah. I'm having my breakfast with them in the morning. They're all having fry-ups. I'm having vitamin tablets and fucking like poached <laughs> eggs and that, you know, and they're like, oh, fuck, you know, what's up with you? And I'm not having a beer. But luckily, the lad who I'm talking about who was next to me, one of my good friends, he was making music as well. So we ended up just taking our computer and just making beats. And anyway, chatting to this girl. And she became a bit of a saviour while I was away. Again, it all aligns, doesn't it? Because she's taking me away, even though I'm not crashing drugs, going through doors at three in the morning. I'm drinking ale with just fucking mindlessly. So I'm chatting to this girl every night now. And I'm chatting to her and she's really cool. And she's a Geordie. And it's like, there's an exotic nature to her because she's, accents like strong Geordie accent yeah yeah I can't even understand half the things she's saying but she's really cool you know she's like I'm, and I'm bewildered to find out a little bit later down the line that she's only 20 at the time I'm 30 and it kind of I thought ah oh, fuck that's fuck then because it's, that's not going to work anyway she was a uni student and I was at the time thinking about fucking off the building and going back to university because I was on my own and thinking, right, I'm going to go and learn media. I'm going to do a media course. I'm going to get into graphic design back to on my art trail that I'd bailed out on. And we got, we got together that summer and she was a bit troubled at that time. She'd been in a long-term relationship and she was young and she'd had her year of carnage. And anyway, she tells me she loves me. She starts to come see me. I go up there to tell her to, to sort of put a bit more context on it. Tell you what did happen. We were chatting, chatting, chatting. And then I made a decision to do something that I would never normally do, which was, because I'm not one of these lads who can go and sit down with a bunch of girls and say, now then, ladies, what are we up to tonight? You know, I've never been able to do that. I've just been quite lucky that I was good at football and then good in bands. And it kind of, you know, girls would could come. But this was the first time where I felt like there's something different about this girl anyway. And I think looking back subconsciously, I'd learned lessons from the last relationship. And my mate said, why don't you go and see her? He said, I mean, he's a car dealer. He said, take one of my cars, go up and see her. Sorry to Newcastle. So, well, sorry back to Lincoln where I lived. And then I hopped in one of his cars and went, oh, I thought, fuck, I'm going to go and see her. And I was nervous as fuck, Sean. I mean, it's like, what, eight hours? Something like that. <laughs> I'd literally picked the car up, got my stuff and went to meet her. And I and for me, it's bizarre paradox, really, because being on a stage, I can go on a stage in front of, I think the most people we've ever been in front of is like 8,000 people, sing, hold court. But then, like, going to see a girl, like, who... He was going to love this. He drove eight hours. <laughs> drove all night. <laughs> yeah, she was cool, and I met her, and, like, I point I'm making is I broke through my little fear barrier. I broke the chain, the momentum of how I saw things or how I thought things had to be. And, I, and then I met her and we got on really well and I was I tried to be a gent and, and had a really nice time. I was just proud that I'd done it. And then it, it blossomed and she'd come to see me and then got to the point where she'd, September, where she'd have to go. This was like May to September. So I kind of thought oh, it might be just a summer of me learning about a different girl and a different way of being. 
But she was like, no, I'm not going back to uni. I hated uni anyway. And I was like, right, well, are we going to go for it? We're going to go for it. So we made, you know, the commitment. She came here and then we never looked back. Yeah, that was that. And then I think within two years, my first boy, we were pregnant. And then by the time he was eight months old, we had said, fuck it, let's leave England. And we went and moved to Thailand. <laughs> and my second wow. son was born there. Wow. But that's probably a story that's, for another day. That's a hell of a story. So you meet someone... Well, oh, you'd already met met her in person, hadn't you, before the online? No, no, you no. met a friend in person I met her through friend, the band. Yeah, that was the irony. Then online, sorry, with the, I didn't with the make, that, make that make sense. Yeah. So when you meet people online, sometimes and you're clicking, yeah. But when you meet them in person, it can be a completely different thing. If people are projecting something other, often, yeah, yeah, the, that, the online, including the that, avatar yeah. is not them. So when you met her, did that chemistry just continue or was there any uncertainties? No, no, it was there. It was genuine. Right, just like that. And as I sit here now, having the the wisdom of some good books in me, as we said all the way up here, producer Ada and I, and as we've come back to time and time again during this podcast, truth, warts and all. I mean, she'd been doing some crazy things at that time as well and she was straight up, I was straight up. And it was, you know, that first year and a half till my son was born, I was still in Lost Souls. We were still on the bus coming back from London. People were still doing the rock and roll shit. And I was trying to, you know, and she was young and she just had her first year of partying. She'd been clean as a whistle till she was 18, split with a long time fella. She went pop. So she's kind of in it. I'm coming out of it, but she didn't want to stay in it. So we had like a year and a half. It was a little bit wobbly. And I was a bit worried because she's 20 and I'm 30. And is this going to... But then when we got the news that we were pregnant and we'd kind of, we were, we were getting that time in our pocket, you know, we were making distance between the need to be at the party and actually setting up a life. And yeah, and then, like I say, by the time we had the boy, I was kind of looking around because the band had stopped, so that brings the band back in. That's when I'd said, you know what, we've missed the boat, we lost souls. I've got a boy, I've got to build a future. All of a sudden it dawned on me, I'm a construction worker and that's it. Whereas before I'd been a musician who had to subsidise myself somehow. Now it was like, no offence to building, I'm a builder now to this day. But I just saw my, in that particular trade, I saw the rest of my life doing just this. And there was nothing left for me to learn. I'd learned everything in my particular trade. And the way bureaucracy was kicking in on building sites and, you know, awful. So I just thought, fuck it. We've got my dad over there in Thailand, my brother's there. The conservative government was starting to wrap around everything. And I said, would you be up for giving it a whirl in Thailand. She'd never fucking, never even understood the place. She's like, why I man, let's fucking go. <laughs> that was that. We went, we went, we went there, yeah. So what was the Thailand adventure like? Amazing. Amazing. That was, for us as a family, that was something so binding and um, I learned so much. I mean, we, we did a year, this was 2014 to 15 and it was, the king was, on his way out and if you, you were in the know in Thailand like my dad had been there 25 years it was pretty clear that like things were going to change you know the, the, there was a political coup in the government and there was all sorts changing they didn't want the phalang there the foreigner you know cashing in on business they were trying to make that eradicate that from the culture and we were hustling my dad's business was go, going good but over there Russia had kind of blitzed everything with money and then they were kind of starting to disappear the money all these buildings were off built condo buildings they were starting to disappear and the the economy their, their kind of credit thing started to happen and all of a sudden we were like wanting for nappies and i had two babies because my second son was born there and we were like coming up to the end of that first year and we were seat of our pants with two babies you know and i just thought fucking i don't know me and my dad bumped heads a bit because of the stress 
And I thought, we're going to have to go back. We're going to have to go back because this, I'm, I, and, and one, one of the other affirming moments was custom officers coming into our office because the Russians are disappearing and the brown envelopes are disappearing with them. The, the police on the ground need to find their readies. So now they're starting to just go into any old business and just trying to make up the offset. So the custom officers come into our office. My dad's not there that day. There's, and out of the 12 tire staff, there's me in the window on my desk. One of them speaks okay English. These three officers come in. And again, it's reminiscent of the, the lads from here. Like, guns went on the table. They're like, sat down, guns on the what? table. Where your papers? Where your papers? You know, like, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, pop, pop. You know, and I'm thinking, oh, have I got my papers at home? Like, oh, and it was fucking heavy. And my primal reaction was one of old where they, they, I, I didn't like being backed up these little Thai people that were talking to me like shit a part of me was like you know I could reach across this table and then immediately thought fuck this is going to go wrong I'm going to end up in jail and no phone call no human rights no fuck all so I just realised in that moment there and that was kind of the icing on the cake for us at that point to say do you know what I think we've got to go back we're going to have to go back because we're at the point where we're going to have to renew the visas, the work permits, which is a big, expensive job. Me, me and my dad are bumped heads. The trajectory didn't look good. And moments like that where I'm struggling to buy nappies and thinking, fucking hell, I could get taken away at any moment here. So that was that was quite affirming. But when we came back, I, I had the hunt with the UK politically and everything. You know, I thought, but I learned a lot about this place. This is a good spot on planet Earth. This is This is a powerful place on planet Earth. And I know it's difficult right now. But as you said earlier, we could be under a rock in fucking, you know, Baghdad. UK's a special place and I learned hell of a lot. And as a family, yeah, it really kind of solidified our journey, the pilgrimage, the belief we can go anywhere now. If we decide to go anywhere, like, because it's a big thing to down tools, sell everything and get on a plane and leave your life. It taught me no end. And I, I again, like with Santiago in, in, uh, in the book, it's like, in the alchemist, you know, we arrive back where we start, having been on the journey to realise that sometimes it's it's right there, you know. You just have to see it. When I got back from, um, I've been in Arizona for seventeen years, been in prison for almost six. I spoke to a soldier who had just got back from a war as well. He's just come back in the country, and um, we could just both had this, like we could see that all of the people were just taking everything in this country for granted. Have it coming from like where there's nothing mm. to seeing like the complacency when actually there is a lot in this country, a lot of wealth. Yep. You know, um, people have got it good, but they find things to complain about. Mm. And those people should travel or go through some hardship because when you're not happy with what you've got, you find trouble in the wrong places. And that this unbalances your life then as well. Yeah, that's, a, totally good, that's agree. a good lesson right there. It's one, you, the, one, of the, one of my ideas for the future that we're not too far away from, the technological AI future is an app, right? Where when you're having a whinge and a moan at your comfortable life, some, you can press a button and you can just be in the fucking Philippines in a, in a, in a you know, an impoverished area, you know, and, and then yeah. fuck me, get me, boom, back. And then humility come over you and like, fuck it, it's all right here. Yeah. We joke, yeah. but like, it is that it is that journey. You know, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. It's a cliche and all the cliches are cliches for a reason. But um, yeah, that, that complacency was massive. And I was I was able to look at myself. I, I had it. I was raging, you know, politically fucking ranting. And right now, you know, it's a difficult time. 
but it's a difficult time everywhere, you know, and he'd rather have a difficult time during this period here than in, you know, name of a thousand places where things aren't nearly as safe and as um, secure. So every time I interview Ron Swanson, he's got very distinct tattoos. Yeah. And the comments always go crazy, saying this guy's in the Illuminati and stuff like that. I'm already preempting the comments now on, on they're going to say that, you know, you're a Satanist. Can you give us the history of that tattoo? That one is, um, yeah, there's two. I've got the other one, there's two parts to it. There's the other one's on my foot there. Um, yeah, so I mentioned earlier, when I started to read and started to understand a little bit about my journey and the philosophy of human, what is it to be a human? A lot of it led me back to ancient stuff, you know, ancient knowledge and the Sumerians fascinated me said to be, you know, the first civilized, you know, predating Egyptians and so on. <clears throat> and they, they seem to, well, their tablets, their stone tablets, which is all the, the, again, said to be the first written text that we have in any kind of a language are alluding to their gods from the skies. Okay, so like the Egyptians and like so much of the symbolism, like there's something other that's potentially been here or is what is, holds reverence and meaning, which is seems to be inexplicably linked to the stars, the sun, the nature of being a human being, which fascinated me because of all the complexities of being in the modern world, like so much of that, although it's far out, makes so much sense because it is, you know, how, I mean, the pyramids, the built, the how, how you build the pyramids, how do they line up with Orion's belt? How, you know, so all that stuff fascinated me. I read some of that in David Icke books when I was incarcerated. Mm. Sumerians and the pyramids yeah. and the, the alignments. Ultimately yeah. the Anunnaki, which yeah. is yeah. said to be the, the race of people that were kind of half humanoid and, you know, mining for monotomic gold. Yeah. And I sometimes think it's crack. You know, you tell that story and people go, that's fucking as if. But then, like, we'll happily believe that people walked on water and turned water, you know, like, so anything's possible for me and actually more possible that we haven't got a fucking clue. But when it's to do with the stars and the, the cosmos itself, fascinated me and the ancient history and the wisdom and obviously all this links into the psychedelics. And for me, some of the most meaningful and empowering difficult things I've ever done is to be connected to that kind of feeling when I'm in that place with a DMT or something like that. So I've always had tattoos and then they've changed with me like chapters, you know, and in the more recent years, yeah, the, the, the so this coming back to your question and, and that, these are said to be the eight pointed star of Jupiter, which one of the gods of the Anunnaki, Anun, was said to, you know, play a lot of homage to and it has a lot of energy based stuff, which I just love the idea of. And I like the fact that it's, you know, it's just kind of minimal. And it has, you pointed down here, is there something you can show? That's it's, on just, your foot. Okay. it's just another version, another version of that, okay. version of that which is a counter to it which sort of lends balance but like on my neck you know um, I think there's a planet on one side which side is it is it the planet on that side this side so that planet is is Nibiru which is said to be the 10th planet and the the um, the loop that comes around it is written in the Sumerian text and instead of stars, I've got like symbols of the Sumerian text within it. And then again, you know, the gods from the sky in the... In the... So it's just my it's little... Eagle, then. 
Well, it's it's a depiction of what a lot of the hieroglyphics and the Sumerians point to as the gods from the sky, yeah. which I just like. The, I love the that, romance of Egyptian, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's somewhere in that era between Egyptian and Sumerian. Yeah. There's lots of derivative versions, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just just a bit of romance and a bit of me hanging on to something that in all this chaos. There's something that's run through everything from day one that is, I don't know, not in language. It's not in something that we can measure or tap. It's just, a, I don't know, a spirit of something. So that's what they are. <laughs> so earlier you were roaming over the big questions of philosophy. And one is, what is the meaning of life? From studying that subject, then, what have you concluded? We've covered it. Truth. It's truth. truth. Authenticity. It's truth. Because from truth is dignity, you know, integrity. And like I said, it's not about being wrong or right or some omnipotent person who, who's got it all right. It's just about f facing yourself. This is just obviously my fucking ramshackle, you know, thrown together philosophy. But that's as complex as this all is. The further I go through my life, I keep coming back to the most simple things. Water vegetables nuts walking exercise fire you know communion we're learning that right now to be with other humans to be connected to share this is all all right and in a screen it's all all right but when you're sat like this i've watched you for hours on a screen now i'm in front of you i can feel your energy and it's you know and it reciprocates and we'll leave this with something subconsciously to consider so for me truth and obviously truth is bolstered by love, you know, and it's a... I was about to say that, meeting your missus, how that has transformed you, bonding overseas together. To me, that is a, a huge thing that's put meaning into your life is love. Mm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And again, coming yeah. back to Chew the Chat, as my childhood of being a bit lost and, you know, isn't, and again, I'm not want to knock my family particularly my mum which I know she loves me we're just different people I know she never set out for any of this stuff and, and I know one day hopefully we'll, we'll be in a better place but the effects on children are massive and as I've gone through this journey that you've heard today you know like that's where I've arrived I've arrived at every adult walking this earth was a child and that child's trajectory if it was if people around the child were present and if they were aware and if they were safe enough in their own skin and, and truthful enough to themselves, this is, this is the elixir. This is what the children will find confidence and stability and, and, and that decision-making and those processes that come from there will ultimately leave us with adults who have feel secure in themselves, who feel balanced, who are open more open to other people. So the love and the truth is, uh, that's where I've arrived, you know, and trying to every day to, to just grow a little bit, you know, and be more aware of other people. That is such a great way to finish this on a note of love. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion, anything you think we've left out to the viewers? Um, just firstly, thank you so much. You know, it's a real privilege to me to be invited to come and speak to you, Sean. Like I said, True Crime Podcast massive for me your story hearing all these lads come through talk to you you said that i've got a good way you've got a great way as well you know you 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 you're soft with these people they're comfortable they let these stories come through 
they're inspiring young people all the time. So thank you for having me. It means a lot. Um, thank you to viewers for listening to me. Um, obviously, Chew the Chat podcast is is what we do. And anybody who's interested in any of this stuff or who may be in a difficult place, a dark place, struggling, um, or friends, whatever, you know, it's all about sharing. We're together in this crazy time, especially now. Yeah, and uh, we just we just we're just trying to survive and be okay. And that's it, man. I just send love. I send love. So I'll put the link to Sam's channel at the top of the description box. If people want to contact you, what's your preferred method? Through socials or? Um, YouTube's probably our, our biggest community at the minute. We're only on Instagram. Again, the battle with trying and, you know, where do you lie with how much you use this? You know, so we're on Instagram. We've just started twitching. So we release, we premiere our episodes on a Friday on YouTube. And the audio podcast goes out on the following Monday. But we've started to, Aiden set up Twitch and we're actually streaming them live on Twitch at the minute. So you can find us there. I guess YouTube or Instagram is, is probably the place. We've got a website, um, chewthechat.com. And with the way things are looking like they're going with censorship and different things like that, you know, we're probably going to try and grow a little hub there. Uh, there's a newsletter there, which is not me sending out newsletters and bombarding people with nonsense, but it's a place where people can drop their email, let us know who you are, say hello. And obviously as time moves on, we'll, we'll know how to get to people and make sure we can keep, keep sharing and being in it together. Good idea. If people are watching this, some of them perhaps want to be considered as a guest on your show. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the criteria for that? Right now, just hit me up, send me a message. We love just we love just speaking to people. Obviously, Ash, who you know takes care of you, is working with us a little bit. He's got a hometown connection with me. He's helping out. Um, but yeah, hit me on Instagram, hit me on YouTube, send a comment. I'm trying. You know, we're a baby channel. We're in our infancy. We've only been on YouTube for since March or something. Um, you alluded to Darren G earlier. Darren was good enough to come on my podcast when we had a hundred subscribers because I'd reached out to him based in all of this. I hope truth that we've talked about. I felt his story. I felt some parallels. He was good enough to give me the time and fuck me. He's got a crazy cult following and our little channel pops, you know, I think his, his interview on our page is at 150,000, you know, um, views and a lot of people said they really enjoyed it and we had a, our angle as, and you've got your angle and James has got his angle and it's really that's really gone well for us so yeah YouTube hit a comment we'll reply Darren's energy touch. is so intense he's like compulsively watchable isn't yeah. he it's like whoa yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's just he's, in he, awe yeah. basically yeah he yeah. is and, and I really thank him for that and you know we've got plans to do it again when he, when he has his baby because I want to get to that part of Darren you know because when he has that baby feeling his energy like I do, trying to repair himself on a much more severe level that I've gone through today. You know, when he has that baby, I think everything's set for him to really feel this 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 energy and this thing that I've experienced that's really going to help him kind of make a bit more sense of it all. So I'm hoping to talk to him about that. Um, I hope that grounds him and he, you know, he becomes... Um more successful in what he's doing definitely yeah. yeah yeah his message is cool and he's got great energy and he was really sweet to my wife and my kids and one of the first things he said was is you know this is and this is really poignant he sort of put his head around in, in my place and he went mate this is a lovely family home i can feel it yeah yeah i had a walk with him in the surrey hills actually before we did our podcast and for a few hours he told me more about his life story and um yeah he has been through a hell of a lot, man. Yeah. All right. So I uh, really hope you've enjoyed this today. Please let us know in the comments. 
please go over and check out Sam's stuff. Like I said, links in the description box. Huge thank you to people who've gone down, clicked in the description box and gone on our socials and donation links. If you want to subscribe, it is free. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. So really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well done. Appreciate it, Sean. Well done. Thanks very much. Yeah.